Jordan Peterson and I travel to the Holy Land to film content that will only be available for our subscribers. We're going to take you along as we tour some of the holiest places in Judaism and Christianity. You'll learn about history, faith, and politics from beautiful locations in the cradle of civilization. We also had the privilege of sitting down with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. How are you? This is a freewheeling conversation. No, this is a freewheeling conversation. Talking about politics, Ukraine, and Russia, and how Netanyahu stood his ground against Barack Obama. Oh, we can talk about this. This is going to be fun. You don't want to miss it. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. This is Abby Martin. Welcome. Hope everybody out there is doing good today in the world. How are you doing, Abby? Doing well, Robbie. Doing pretty, pretty well. Thanks for asking. So do you, do you want to start by not getting into the heavy stuff and we could just kind of go over some lighter stuff first so we don't get too depressed at the beginning. Yeah, let's yeah, let's not bombard meteor roots heads with uh the craziest shit right from the get. Um I did want to say just a follow-up on the midterm coverage that we did that you know, a lot of the people that we were talking about the the Peter Thiel funded candidates, you know, other than JD Vance didn't end up winning. Although it's not like a huge victory here because it was by such a tiny fraction that they lost by, hence why we didn't know the results at the time of the recording. I think it should really still scare all of us that they were that close and next time it'll just be however many more billions of dollars poured in to ensure that they will go over the finish line. And so, you know, Democrats or generic Republicans winning instead of these propped up candidates whether it be the kind of trump endorsed people or the really crazy outliers or peter thiel just straight up cutouts i think is not that great of a consolation here because we're just staving off the inevitable absolutely agree i really do think that this even though it may seem subtle to people and not that different from before i mean not just the amount of money you know almost 18 billion dollars i think it was we said 16 i think it's somewhere in between uh, right. In terms of this midterms, that is at least double of the budget. Actually, it's more like three times the budget of the previous midterms. So that's how much of an exponential increase we've gotten since the Obama re-election campaign, which was, as far as we knew, the first billion-dollar political campaign in history. Um, this, So just think of the escalation since then. So just in terms of a monetary level, this is about 20 times worse in terms of the amount of money influencing the situation. So that alone is really bad. But then you have just this mask off stuff going on, you know, like we were talking about last episode where Peter Thiel is not merely propping up and sort of shadow bankrolling a candidate. He is literally carpet bagging his own employee to Arizona to run for Senate. The COO of Teal Capital, Silicon Valley COO, like you go to Arizona and run as an anti-immigration, pro-gun, pro-MAGA candidate. You can't, it's almost like ludicrous to think that you can easily, that easily launder someone who's like a fucking Bay Area Silicon Valley COO. I mean, it's fascinating that that's how easy it is or was in this last election cycle. Right. And he just looks like a Christian Bateman, like American psycho 
just like straight out of the, the fucking warehouse where he's chopping up dead bodies. I mean, it, it is just really strange that he was able to just be totally implanted and believed. And I think it yeah. shows you even just people like Herschel Walker, who I saw people like Michael Tracy being like, if you said that he was stupid, then you're just basically being anti-black because that's how black Southern people talk. And it's like, no, I'm not talking about, we're not talking about like his Southern drawl. Yeah. Like this guy is total lunatic. I mean, he like pretended to be like a federal agent and a police officer and people were even interviewed who were voting for him. They were like, I would vote for (laughs) Daffy Duck just to not vote for a Democrat. I mean, that's how just insane the, you know, just this binary kind of thinking has become. Yeah. I mean, I think on one level, it's the f- the failing of the whole MAGA system is like you have to also realize on some level that normal people have like a creep detector and like they get creeped out and Blake Masters just didn't he wasn't able to get through that detector like he just came off really creepy really disgusting icky weird weird dude not likable not charismatic too tall that weird german gun uh shooting range video he made where he was like talking about how awesome it was to use a silencer i mean i watch that video simultaneously thinking it looks like a he's never shot a gun before b what a weird thing to dog whistle to while acting like you're a gun nut which i don't believe he is so it's like a weird it's just a weird juxtaposition of like nonsense that you're watching on display Mm -hmm. um so that's really all i have to say about it joe kent i guess is still in the running he's still i guess that hasn't been totaled yet uh oh wow but what's fascinating is i didn't realize on our last episode how much of a generic boomer lib carrie lake was like Mm -hmm. she just completely on a fucking dime flipped into like a maga rebranding one of the just it says fascinating to think that someone could be a blatant obama supporting liberal five years ago and then all of a sudden just switch and everybody believes them. It's like that just not it's just not believable on its face. This is all fucking fake. Well, like you said, for some reason that trajectory is embraced and you you rarely see the other turnaround. You no. rarely see you, these extremist right wing MAGA people becoming like conscientious leftists. It's like yeah. that that just doesn't happen. The only version of that that even is remotely similar is like the whole rebranding of the neocons becoming like libs like Bush right era right neocons. which is totally but, yeah no that's totally different because yeah. it's like the same policies but because it's bipartisan but yeah no it's that there really is no trajectory like that and i think well, yasha kind of nailed it i mean in part it's like there's no money first of all to do the other trajectory unless you become like a generic lib or something but to actually go from like maga to leftist a there's no money there and then B, there's way more money to do the opposite. Like right. that's where the money is. Like you do the opposite, you go from lefty to MAGA, then the cash you can start seeing dollar signs everywhere. Get on Tucker Carlson the next day, baby. Yeah, or get signal boosted by one of these like crazy ass accounts. You know, any any of that shit. It's right. wild. Right. It is wild. It is wild. Speaking of wild, um, I just I've I've been into these. <laughs> this whole exploration of like the medical industry and how corrupt the medical industry is for so many reasons, but like the, basically this protection that the medical industry puts forward um, to not reveal like horrible 
fraud and also like um, potential murders taking place from certain doctors that are circulating through different hospitals and stuff. And this Mm -hmm. was articulated in um, a movie that just came out called The Good Nurse. Not particularly good movie, but it's about a real doctor, a real nurse, excuse me, who killed up to 400, 400 patients by injecting insulin in their um, IV. This is basically like considered like one of the world's most prolific serial killers right yeah i've heard of this but i didn't catch your dose episode about it no we haven't done one yet i really want to um if anyone knows anyone that can talk about this please let me know and then mom turned me on to this other series uh dr death on i want to say paramount or peacock both horrible apps that constantly have like snow on my tv and completely fuck up my tv every time i try to watch them but unfortunately it's the only app that hosts this show, Dr. Death, very good show, totally insane story about another doctor who was just such a megalomaniac. Like, I don't even know if he was doing it on purpose or not, but he was so narcissistic that he just was like a total try-hard failure in medical school and became a neurosurgeon because his hands were just held by these people who believed in this harebrained idea that he could like bypass surgery and just like inject stem cells and cure people's fucking spinal injuries and stuff and and so he just was this golden boy who was propped up in the medical system and ended up doing 30 surgeries almost every fucking like literally 99 percent of the patients he operated on were either horribly maimed and paralyzed or just straight up killed like he just straight up killed them and then the hospitals just kept passing him off from one hospital to the next and never reported him because they didn't want the liability. And it's the same thing with this other nurse. Like, there was suspicion that this guy was responsible for these aberrant deaths, but they just completely covered their own asses. But this guy was, like, straight up, everyone knew that he was doing this shit, and everyone was like, what the fuck are you, like, why is this guy operating on patients? He doesn't know what the fuck he's doing, and they just kept letting him. It's really It's absolutely insane. I mean, I've been really, it's not, it has almost nothing to do with COVID at all, but I've got really disillusioned with and kind of just thrown for a loop by the medical system um, in the last five years that started with a doctor who ran his own urology practice in Walnut Creek. I won't say his name, uh, but basically. Let's blast him out, dude. I don't, I, 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 actually, I wish <laughs> I remember his name. I didn't say that because like, <laughs> oh, I don't okay. want to like. Well, I'm up. I don't say I won't say his name because I don't remember it. But yeah. <laughs> but what happened was I had um, I thought I had like a urinary tract infection and just wouldn't go away. And the first urologist I saw, who was very trustworthy, very well regarded, uh, came upon a recommendation. Basically, determined he just said up right off the bat, you you probably have testicular cancer, and we need to s- schedule <laughs> you for an operation, right? So being as naive as I was at the time, I just assumed that he was, had expertise to determine that. But the more questions I asked, the more I realized that he didn't. And the other, the the first, so I I had to get like four different opinions to just convince myself that this wasn't correct until I finally was able to convince myself. But eventually what I learned was that all these other urologists I had seen who had heard of this doctor's name were basically just like oh yeah he's known for that he's a surgeon he sees everything every problem is a nail and he's a hammer 
Oh, that's great. Like a doctor just straight up told me that he knew his name. He knew his reputation for advocating for surgery, like with no reason whatsoever. He wants to do surgeries because that's how he gets paid. Right. No, exactly. And that's basically- they don't, get paid, they don't get paid for preventative treatment or even consultations about no. care. It's So it's really nuts when you really realize that a lot of people in this world are selfish. A lot of people in this world are cutthroat. A lot of these people in this world are amoral. And that's doesn't, being a doctor doesn't make you immune from any of those things. In fact, it almost maybe sometimes makes it worse. Right. When you're in a for-profit industry, that's, yeah. that's you know. And already I do think this is not a slight on doctors at all, but I do think that people who perform surgery, who work in ERs, as much as they mar- might be altruism behind it, I do think it takes a particular kind of brain type to be able to not like find that type of stuff horrifying. Like it is sort of interesting to think what kind of desensitization or mindset enables you to actually tear someone open. And <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, no, yeah. It's yeah, it's yeah, a creepy yeah. to no, me. I always it's think a little that. creepy to me that. to be honest. Like I wouldn't personally be fr- really good friends with someone who was a surgeon, even if they seem like a great person, because there'd be always be something in the back of my mind where I'd be like, is there a part of this person's brain that like they untrained themselves from being a serial killer and devoted their <laughs> their abilities <laughs> to a noble profession instead? You know what I mean? Like Yeah, 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 yeah. Like they have the inclination to to little creepy. cut people up yes. and then they're like, hmm, I'm gonna try to override this chip malfunction exactly. in my brain. Well, what's really interesting about at the end of the good nurse, I was appalled to find out that the victims could be up to 400 people. But also, to your point, um, this was in 2016 by Johns Hopkins. So I don't know what the stats are now after COVID and the kind of normalization of this math, mass death epidemic. But um, over an eight-year period, Johns Hopkins University studied that medical errors are the third leading cause of death in the U.S. Amazing. That's pretty shocking. It's shocking. Well, I guess it depends on what I would, I think I would have to, I would have to look at exactly what the medical error meant. Like if it was a doctor making like, like not detecting something that should have been through the normal procedure, then like that makes more sense. But if it's like medical errors, like accidentally cutting someone's wrong organ out, you know, like the wrong kidney (laughs) out, then that would be like really shocking. But I right. could I could almost picture it if it, it does mean like this is there's a certain protocol and system for how you create diagnosis and that things get missed or not caught in time. And I don't I guess I guess maybe that could be considered an error, but the movie was insinuating that it was not that was not the case, that it was just not detecting things. Yeah. That it I mean, was it more was, yeah, more sinister. actual actively mm-hmm. making mistakes, like giving mm-hmm. people the wrong medicine or mm-hmm. probably stuff like that. I mean it makes just sense. absolutely insane shit. I mean, it's just it's just totally batshit crazy because at first I was like, oh my God, this is so fear-mongery. Like at first, you know, it had, it had that display screen at the end being like, this is going to happen again. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, why? Why would it happen again? I mean, aren't there people pursuing legislation to ensure that hospitals can't just do this shit? And then it was like, and then it said all these stats about all the things that kill people every year and like how common this is. I was just like, Oh my God, like I'm actually really scared to go. I don't want to go in for surgery. Holy fuck. This is, I mean, your experience too is just really alarming. It It just shows you how eager doctors are to just jump on the bandwagon of pushing unnecessary operations that are like potentially life altering. I would just say to anyone out there, especially men, 
if you've been told by a doctor, especially if they run a surgical practice, that you have testicular cancer and you need to get operated on, get a second opinion. Just do it. Mm -hmm. Because of course. that's your ball. Even though you can live fine with one ball that's and your still ball. have their same <laughs> sex drive or sperm count or whatever, it's fucking, it's a crazy thing to just do on a whim because a doctor feels your ball for a second. It's like, oh, you got testicular cancer. There's plenty of, you know, growths or other things that are benign that happen to people's testicles. So it makes me wonder actually how many people who have gotten their ball taken out who actually did not have cancer. Because right. once they take it out, they're able to, that's when they're able to biopsy it. There's no way to biopsy your testicle without removing it completely. I definitely recommend getting two or three um, Absolutely. other if Other you can to look at, yeah, of course, that's, if you can, it's very expensive, that's, obviously. That's but. the thing with, if you have, or if you're part of an HMO network, it's actually much harder to do that. Like Kaiser, mm. if you almost have to trust that Kaiser has enough people looking into your stuff that where that wouldn't happen. But I think the, really the only way to get like second and third opinions, if you're like on like a healthcare plan where you're not under like an umbrella like that, where you can get specialists, you can just, you know, make appointment with whoever, as long as they take your insurance. Um, yeah, that's a big, that's a big problem too. Yeah. I mean, I, um, when I had ear problems, Kaiser, I remember I just had to pay out of pocket eventually because I just, they just weren't helping me. And, you know, I eventually went to like a hearing doctor. This was like a decade ago. Um, but yeah, it's not, it's not surprising. I think as long as there's so much, so much of a profit motive and the state just sort of, or the government just sort of hands off. It's not really going to change. Um, you know? Yeah. I went in for an ultrasound. I'm pregnant again, by the way, surprise everyone. Um, <laughs> surprise. But I went in that for was an the, that was the news I was going to say. I couldn't <laughs> say yet. So we just broke it. We broke it. We here. just broke it, baby. Broken at media roots radio. Um, I went in for an ultrasound a couple of weeks ago and I was talking to, the doctor about, uh, I was just like asking questions about, um, when your placenta stops growing and he was just like, well, it just stops functioning as well at around 39, 40 weeks. And he's like, that's why we recommend getting like preparing C-sections. Like if you're, if you're over 40 weeks and I was just like, that is <laughs> like completely fucking unnecessary. You know, and it's like, it's also just crazy because my first child, the birth was so expensive and I had really nice health care and everything went according to plan. And it was still like 10 grand, even with my wow. insurance. And and I can't even imagine, I mean, I'm sure a C-section would just be astronomically high. And it's just fascinating that they're already prepping you for that, that you it need an induction, you need a C-section yeah. and because you're, because your placenta, it's like dangerous, basically. They don't want to get and sued. It's like, Probably that's part of it too. That's part of it too. Liability. Right. I mean, I straight up was told by a doctor, if you go see enough doctors and you talk to them for long enough, they will start saying things that reveal parts of what we're saying. Like, for example, I just went to the doctor for some hearing issues and she asked me, oh, did you, you know, get an MRI for this acoustic neuroma thing already? And I was like, yeah. And then I started sort of asking her questions about what that is. And then she's like, yeah, we really have to make sure people do that because that's the most, that is the most common way that we get sued is if we don't check for this. So it's like, but also <laughs> aren't, aren't hospitals protected from lawsuits? Cause that was a big thing about these patients and the victims that had to go through like the criminal justice system to actually pursue. I think um, 
legal action against this doctor that was killing everyone. I think it depends. Like on this, in this particular instance, this is like something that the insurance companies require them to do. Right, right. So like if it's already like locked in that way where it's like to get a person to get this kind of treatment, they need to get an MRI for this first. Like, because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this is cheaper basically. Um, right. Like that kind of stuff, I feel like you could be like, well, the insurance company literally told you to do this and you didn't do it like you could probably sue for something like that um i don't know i mean I, i'm just totally talking yeah. out of pocket i have no fucking idea well it is it is crazy either way it's just an absolute abomination our entire medical industry and i anyone who's around the world listening to people in america talk about this shit is just like aghast it, it's um, it's crazy that we still it's don't have nuts, dude and especially after the pandemic that like the discussion yeah. of like free <laughs> universal health care is just dead dude it's dead and what's what's also really fascinating is i just did an interview on dosed with a woman who an incredible subject about death um that we're all very scared of yet our work revolves around a lot i mean i'm immersed with talking about human suffering and death all the time, yet it's like when you kind of speak about our own mortality and really assess how that drives our behavior and our culture, it's like something that's for some reason more controversial and taboo. So it was really interesting to dive into that with her. But also one of the most dosed facts coming out of um, the interview was just what happens to your dead body if you don't have the money for a funeral? Because this huge for-profit funeral industry that is super exploitative and predatory that, you know, the average funeral costs are like 15 grand. And so we're so unprepared and detached from this whole system in the West and especially in America more than any other country that like it's very sudden, especially when it's a violent death and people just have no idea what to do. And if their cultural norms require them to go through like the standard funeral process, I mean, they're just in debt from this and begging for money on GoFundMe and if you are like unhoused or homeless and you have and you just die on the streets they they have like a mass grave in every city pretty much in LA it's like in Boyle Heights where they just cremate you and then pour your ashes into like a huge dump in this giant mass grave it's just very very creepy stuff that um you know dying and having your body if you just want like a simple cremation or if you just want a simple burial like that shit should be free (laughs) like if you don't have money you know i mean it's just so it's just so twisted and warped that this is like an exploitative for-profit industry that preys on vulnerable low-income people that are like suffering from tragedy so anyway listen to that episode it's a it's a fucking doozy but it'll blow your mind and also just why the America is so unique and like we worship, you know, we have these altars of death with our gun culture and war and empire. And then we just don't talk about this shit. We just don't acknowledge. We we completely have this giant void of like caring for elderly people and facing our own mortality, you know? And that's why we have these crisis cults and bizarre mythology that drives so much, um, of of what defines us today and it's very fascinating stuff um check it out not enough people are listening to dosed and giving me props on that shit dude you gotta up the ante on that robbie any update on your ai movie that has turned into nearly an hour-long film where is it at where when are you putting that out well it's going to be 
probably come out the first week of January. That's what I'm shooting for. And for people who don't know what this is, it's not really politics related at all. It's just purely a creative pursuit. Um, but I've been getting really into the process of creating imagery uh, via AI, artificial intelligence, like image generation. Even though it's not, it's not really accurate to call it artificial intelligence, that's what it's being called. And um, basically what it, what it is, is it's not motion. Uh, it's kind of almost like still imagery that is kind of animated to some degree. Some of it is not animated, but it's all uh, assembled together like a horror movie. And it's kind of, in in a way, it's kind of a fan sequel to the thing, the original thing movie. It's not, um, it's not a prequel like the actual prequel that came out in two thousand eleven. It's it takes place directly after the events of the original movie. Um, and for anybody who's a fan of horror, experimental film, or the th or the thing, um, I think you would probably enjoy it. Um, and yeah, so it's yeah I've been working on it probably for the last six months, and I'm very excited to finally put it out. I don't think really think there's anything out there like it yet, um, so I don't know what the response is going to be. Some people might be just like, "What the hell is this?" Other people might be like, "This is awesome." <laughs> it's kind of a it's a weird thing to to work on, but um, I think one of the I'll just say one of the reasons that it's been so fun is because I can basically produce totally photorealistic looking images of characters in really any situation I want that is essentially like you, you, it's basically like storyboarding a movie, like people who go into production meetings to pitch movies, they would really benefit from this technology because what I've created basically looks like a photographic actual filmed movie. It's just in stills. So I just think for any aspiring filmmaker, uh, this is a really powerful and interesting tool that just really gets your create creativity flowing because it's to have the resources to be able to do this even if you were to do it just by photoshopping things together would take an enormous amount of time i mean if of i course. did this on photoshop or tried to learn cgi or whatever do this it would have taken me probably like three years to do what i've already <laughs> done in six months so yeah um that i so anybody who's an aspiring filmmaker out there check out things like dolly 2 Stable Diffusion, Mid Journey, uh, very incredible tools for at least realizing your ideas in your head. Like if you have ideas for movies, there's no better technology out there, I think. Have, for... you, have <laughs> you generated the soundtrack with AI as well? I have, yes. There's an old tool out there actually that was released um, about three years ago called Jukebox AI that isn't like it's different than the text to image generators because you don't just type something and then it generates music you actually have to feed it like source material like 10 seconds of music and what's really neat about it is even though it's three years old it produces a continuation of that 10 or however many seconds you want in whatever genre you want with an artist cue that you prompt it with and you could put in multiple artists multiple genres it's i'd say the worst thing about it is it's very unpredictable so I think most people just give up on using it because the results are just too weird and out of control. But yeah, the the whole, pretty much the whole score is done like that. So some of it is like I've inputted like five seconds of John Carpenter, and then mm -hmm. the and then the music you're hearing is like the AI riffing off of that. That's amazing. That's um, amazing. 
and all the vote all the voices there is a lot of acting in it which is sort of weird for me to be doing that's also ran through ai voice morphers um and for people who have been listening to previous media roots episode you probably have already heard me using that so people got really creeped out by it actually uh and were upset that i was (laughs) that i was playing around with these on one episode so um let's uh well, it's definitely, I, I'm really excited to watch it. Please send it to me before January. That That's a long time to wait yeah. for me. Um, have you seen Orgasm Inc. on Netflix, Robbie? Have you come across that documentary? I haven't, and I only if you watch it, tell me I have to watch it, will I watch it? Because the, cause I, I, the concept of this cult, which we've already talked about, is it's just pretty off-putting in a lot of ways. So, But what is it like? Have you seen it? Yeah, well, we briefly mentioned the One Taste um, OM, Orgasmic Meditation Cult, before, you know, sponsored and endorsed by the likes of Deepak Chopra, Gwyneth Paltrow. You know, it was really heavily platformed across mainstream media in new age circles, embarrassingly so, when you really dig, you know, just uncover what the fuck this (laughs) was. Yeah. And what was funny about it, too, it was totally framed as like a female empowerment meditation sessions that take back you know female sexuality and especially in the age of me too it was very heavily promoted as a way to like center female voices and empower women the woman who founded one taste nicole deadon is a complete sociopath who talks openly about how rape isn't real and how women cannot be raped and if you are a rape victim it's just because you're not turned on enough whoa so she's almost like that's almost like more disgusting than that one senator or whatever who came out that one time and said that like everything shuts down down there when you get raped so like you can't actually rape someone like there wouldn't be a way to like stick it in or whatever like crazy that's fucked (laughs) yeah so no it's super crazy and she's being filmed she's giving presentations just laughing about this shit and talking about how she wants to actually have t-shirts about um, like how rape isn't real and sell them and stuff. It's oh, crazy that the that this was this was the woman who was promoted by the likes of these huge new age pioneers. Another interesting thing about fuck. the cult, very sick fuck. Another interesting thing about the cult is that um, it turns out that they were soliciting members and employees to just have sex with men because even though it was framed as just you know female masturbation and clitoral stimulation, it was really like 10 to 1 male um, members and people who were interested in participating who were men compared to the women. And so they had to just start using all the women that were working for them. And in these circles, of course, typical cult-like stuff like Nixium, you know, overworking people, not paying people, and then just essentially... It wasn't like the blackmail that Nixium was, but it was more just like you are indebted to us, so you need to basically serve us and do all this shit for us. Um, And so a lot of these people were just having sex with men and just prostituting these women out to just, you know, entice the men to stay and then pay an exorbitant amount of money to this woman. And then what really came out in the documentary, and I I, I wouldn't recommend watching the documentary. The only reason that I I think that you might want to give it a click is just because One Taste is trying to sue and get it taken down because <laughs> it's so it's so seems horrifying. A too late for that. Yeah, yeah, right. It's been out for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what was funny is like the whole thing. It's just another weird cult, just like Nixium, who's led in part by you know Nixium had the female next to Keith Raniere. This one was all women. 
But of course, it turns into another sexual exploitation cult to serve men. It's well, it super was, bizarre. It was women. A lot of it was women paired up with men, right? Like that's those were the male, workshops. Males were stroking women. But here's what came out in the documentary is that there was a male stroking session that happened under the radar as well. So basically, you just go and give men hand jobs um, under this, you know, veil of like orgasmic meditation as well. And it's just it's just so hilarious because they really tried to hide that, but someone got footage of it and it's in the documentary. Oh, so there's <laughs> so there's footage of the actual yeah. sessions. What are they like? Because like, are they as weird as we sort of were talking about, or were they different? Like, what describe it? <laughs> well, I mean, it, in a way, some of them are really clinical, like on purpose because it was like the promotional stuff. Uh -huh. But then the ones that were hidden like secretly filmed were like hilarious because I mean Nicole Deadone for example is filmed for like investors and she's like putting on this extremely over the top theatrical show where she's pretending to have like a 10 minute orgasm and it's just like I don't like this isn't real <laughs> I mean it's just like so stupid you she's know? pretending to meaning she's getting touched or she's just standing yeah there? yeah no she's getting touched yeah and she's just like like going through all of these you know all of these motions of just pretending like it's just this huge thing. Yes. It's so crazy. And then what's weird about it is like Bloomberg released one article. I think when we talked about this, there was another article that came out because it was not too long ago when we talked about the cult. But I think back in like right when Me Too was burgeoning, um, a Bloomberg article came out that or that exposed a kind of some of the inner workings of this. And then the woman immediately sold her shares and just like fled to Bali. <laughs> like... It wasn't like the Keith Raniere where he like held on to the end, you know? Yeah. Like that's, I think she was just such a grifter that she just fucking bounced with all the money immediately and that's it. I mean, I don't, I think there's, the cult definitely still exists today. There's clearly mm -hmm. members trying to get the documentary taken down, but it was, it was a fascinating revelation of who this woman is and how you can be rebranded even though you're on camera saying the most horrific shit about rape about women her oh i forgot the craziest part robbie her father the woman who founded one taste her father was a serial child molester and on video she's like i she was like he's just living in another realm of reality that we don't understand yet like she was basically <laughs> saying how she respects him and that like he tapped into something that was like like everyone was turned on almost insinuating that children could also be like participants like very yeah. Very surreal kind of He's on um, language plane. that she was putting out. He was on another plane yeah. of reality that we just a haven't tapped into. Understanding how good it is to fuck children. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. So she's a <laughs> real wild documentary there. <laughs> I mean, I, I'll I'll watch I'll watch it just to get a glimpse of the footage of it because I've just I'm just so curious. Um but uh yeah, I mean it's it sounds it just throw it on the pile of like all these weird rich people who seem to be connected to like media figures or celebrities who just like run these crazy scams and some of them get away with it some of them don't like um like as her name elizabeth holmes with Ther theranos oh yeah 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 like, well I, just... I feel like she was sentenced only because people were like wanting to um set a precedent because she embarrassed so like, many silicon make an example. investors yeah yeah i mean that's and this ftx guy who did this like weird cryptocurrency scam thing like i, I mean it just seems like there's someone like this every single month that we mm -hmm. hear about now and it's just sort of normal now that like it is really rich people trying to run these like extremely obvious scams but somehow just getting a bunch of people big people to promote it and like get on board it's it's kind of surreal it's super surreal
Um, a couple quick headlines that I just wanted to get out there. Um, we talked about Biden's student debt relief plan. It's been challenged by several states. And just a couple weeks ago, it was actually um, challenged by a former Trump-appointed judge that is trying to completely halt the rollout of it, saying it's a complete usurpation of congressional authority. So he is now halting the entire rollout of whatever the hell the remainder of the student debt relief, as menial as it was, it's pretty crazy that here we go back to the courts. Yeah. Right. Woke libs controlling the country, yet somehow Trump appointed judges halting even the most mediocre reforms that Biden is trying to put forward. So there wait, you go with that. Wait, can I just go back to, since we're yeah. done talking about movies, I just wanted to mention yeah. really quickly that I did get really into a show recently and I binged it so fast that I'm like sad about it already because it was amazing. What was it? Um, don't laugh at me, but the AMC- West Side Story? No, the AMC interview with the vampire show. Oh, cool. Absolutely blew me away. I think it, wow. it's probably the best- an edgiest like queer thing that i've ever seen on television too like and spoil spoilers i'm not going to give away like actual spoilers for the plot because this is revealed in episode one but for people who've only seen the movie or maybe read the book they take the actual like homosexual in insinuations to the next level it is an overtly gay relationship it's abusive it's fat it's 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 portrayed in an amazing way um, in the show. And there's also a racial element to it where actually, um, not Lestat, but the other vampires, like a black new Orleans plantation comes from like a plantation owning family. So they, so there's some of those elements too. And it's kind of almost like a quasi sequel to the first book and like a remix of it too. So it, it's, it starts out with the same guy who was interviewing the vampire in the you know original book but he it's like 30 years later and the interviewer is much older and of course the vampire like this looks the same because he's you know immortal um so that's sort of the setup for it and then it goes back into the past and it's it's amazing like i it's only i think like eight seven episodes long the first season and i was i was really sad that it was only that short like it's it was it's probably the best like new show i've seen in I don't know, at least a few years that's been oh, on. It barely got any marketing for some reason. So, yeah. <laughs> I'll check it out for sure. I'm yeah. sure it's better than Mobius. The <laughs> yeah, which I did watch. <laughs> that looks almost like did you CGI watch from like 20 years ago. Yeah, I saw it on a plane and I was like appalled at how it was a new movie, but it looked like it was from like the 90s. It was yeah. like zero budget. The best part in it was I was in the other room when Lori and I were watching it, like doing something. And I heard, all of a sudden, I thought that she had switched the movie or turned it off, and I thought that Batman <laughs> Begins or The Dark Knight was playing, because there's like a scene in the movie where they literally rip off the whole musical score from Batman Begins, where all the bats are flying around Bruce Wayne, yeah, 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 like yeah, yeah, yeah. two, yeah. like a paint, like exact copy. <laughs> it was I was just like, what? <laughs> like who? <laughs> Anyways, I mean, it did so bad. Yeah, I'm not surprised though. Um, <laughs> Definitely going to watch that show. Um, don't be a scab. Don't cross the picket line. Strikes at Starbucks across the country. There was 100 different stores participating a couple days ago. Um, definitely support your local union efforts. I've seen just hilarious kind of like these neoliberal takes on how people were not supporting the strike because 
They said that workers outside picketing were not wearing masks and that they hate disabled people. Just really crazy kind of hot takes um, to just not support unions and strikes, and it's just very bizarre. So at least 257 Starbucks stores have voted to unionize since late last year, and they're retaliating. I mean, Starbucks is now offering increases of pay and benefits to non-union stores, which is super fucked up. And um, and they're justifying that by just saying, oh, well, we can't give union stores pay hikes without bargaining. And it's just an incentive to not unionize, mm-hmm. you know, and it's showing just how much of a threat this whole labor movement that's amazingly gaining so much more steam this year. I mean, labor is and union drives and all of these things is what, you know, what the foundation is to, to fight big capital. And so the fact that we're seeing more and more giant corporate chains um workers fighting back to try to unionize and and get better rights and benefits is just a beautiful thing and so it's just amazing to see the retaliatory methods that corporations are taking including you know tesla is also taking pretty harsh measures to expose like union leaders we saw what happened with christian smalls with amazon um and amazon employees are are trying to unionize as well i definitely support that effort so definitely uh, shout out to those workers. It's not easy to do, and they're risking their jobs and livelihoods to do so. But Robbie, um, you know, people will say that the baristas and people who work in coffee shops and stuff—they're not really part of the working class. So, oh, you mean the, the maggot communist movement—they <laughs> <laughs> have that has so much prominence. <laughs> <laughs> um. So moving on to this story, I feel like we really have to talk about this because I was really shocked to see so many people that I respect and follow mm-hmm. promoting this shamelessly and uncritically. It was such an obvious fake news story from the get. Mm-hmm. Look, I know we have not covered Iran. That's not because I have not wanted to cover Iran. It's because there's so much nuance there. We really have to be delicate with it and and responsible, right? Because Iran is obviously in the crosshairs of the U.S. empire for regime change. That is not to say that I do not support women standing up against um, the morality police and this horrific repression that's going on where obviously protesters are being hurt, arrested, and mass. That is an undisputed thing. I've, I've heard horror stories about the morality police well before this all erupted. The problem is that because Iran, you know, because there's not many legitimate news sources on the ground and not credible sources within Iran that are circulated and amplified by Western media, fake news stories could become viral very quickly and just add and pile on to the regime change shit. And, and that's no, exactly what happened. And and even worse, there's a lot of people who still have this story up. Like they didn't even bother to right. retract it or correct it. I mean, just really quickly lay out the specifics of, I mean, because just on its face, it sounds fake. It's totally, yeah. So I saw this being circulated even by Amnesty International, even by Amnesty International, Robbie. So it was Iran is planning to execute 15,000 protesters, 15,000 protesters sentenced to death by Iranian courts. And, And apparently, and this is also disputed, 15,000 people are who have been arrested the protests. I have not confirmed that number, but it's just ludicrous to think that Iran would execute every single person who has been 
arrested. And it's just so shameless and embarrassing for entities like Amnesty International, which I really think it, the irresponsibility to promote something like this it calls into question everything that they've done, right? And it and it makes you realize how we could just lap up, you know, we as a society, Western media, just lap up anything about Venezuela, Cuba, North Korea, especially because it's so closed off, China. I mean, it's just cartoonish, you know? Someone with any sort of faculty of critical thinking would read that headline and be like, that is not possible. It's just not possible. And it's interesting. But you, just, you saw Justin Trudeau, um, I mean, so many U.S. politicians, Robbie, Ted Lieu, mm-hmm. or the fucking prime minister of Canada. I mean, it's it's so weird because like who, like I'm just reading this article that you mm-hmm, put in here mm-hmm. that it's from the cradle.co. I don't know much about this website, but they kind of break down how this got turned into this story. And it, I guess it all came from what they describe as a UK-based Saudi-funded website called Iran International that put out a single tweet that just shows a picture of an Iranian parliamentary vote that says 227 members of the 290-seat parliament of Iran have called on the judiciary to issue death sentences for people arrested during the ongoing anti-government protests. And that's, that's how it got started. So it's like, what is this website? I mean, you almost have to wonder, like, who is this like a cutout? Like, or is it just like a no, it is a tabloid? Cutout. Yeah, I mean, it, it's... but. If it is a cutout, even still, you would think that some of these, like Newsweek, you know, which I will right. say Newsweek is a huge neocon propaganda outlet, but that's like, it just seems really irresponsible when it like, that's the only source. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's odd. And I don't understand why even like someone who hated Iran and was singularly focused on that situation right now wouldn't take a step back and be like, actually, this is not true. I, I literally only saw one person who has been promoting the protests, like actually retracted on Twitter. One guy. Really? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's actually impressive. Yeah. Cause I, cause as you mentioned, I mean, multiple people have just let it s- sit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in this article, it talks about how further muddying the waters, the figure of the 15,000 protesters in the first place originates from an entity called the human rights activist news agency, which is a U.S. based <laughs> media arm of the national endowment for democracy i mean it's just it's just totally crazy it's like i mean look obviously you know people have the right to protest right and the fact that what is true that iran has sentenced one protester to death on charges of disturbing public peace and order because they burned some building down is horrible um but to have you know to conflate one person being charged with this penalty to 15,000. 15,000 is just bizarre. It, and it also, let's just say if you are someone who is very focused on human rights in Iran and you're very upset about what's going on, you should also be upset that like actual fake news is taking away from right. actual identifiable like people who are either in jail from protesting or have, who have died. Like, it just it just seems like that alone would stop you from spreading something like that because it just completely sucks all the air out of real people. You know exactly. I mean exactly. Unless you really had some evidence to suggest that really happened, then I guess it would make sense to report that. But like I don't know, it's just fucking. 
it's it just doesn't make sense to me on a just a basic level unless a lot of these people are just like you know weird think tank plants or intelligence associated people who have a hidden agenda that they're pushing i mean i think that's the uh, that's has to be the case because yeah. people who are working at outlets like newsweek and I mean, it's embarrassing for a prime minister of a country to actually just amplify this uncritically. It's it's shocking for Amnesty to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, people really look at Amnesty as kind of the arbiter of human rights around the world. Um, and it's just absolutely bizarre. And it just really reveals how easy it is to manufacture fake news against U.S. adversaries. And like you said, it's so irresponsible on so many levels because there are legitimate grievances coming out of Iran and people's stories do need to be heard. And now it's just overshadowed and can be used to just be like, well, we don't believe anything or, you know, I mean, it it can be used for so many reasons to discredit so much because it's just been so eagerly shared. I'm almost trying to think of an example of like where someone from like our side would benefit from making an exaggerated claim like that. But what would happen is if we, what if we said like Israel just murdered 20,000 Palestinians <laughs> overnight yesterday and it wouldn't, it wouldn't get any traction. In fact, the only traction it would get, it was like big, like the only big websites that report about it are like, dis, like this is disinfo or Snopes or something. Mm-hmm. But the the other when that comes from the other side, it's like once it's in Newsweek and there's no overt retraction, it's that people will believe it. Like the majority of the mainstream public will just believe it and never exactly. look back. So it's it's that's why they I think they do it is because it works. Right. Even though you would think that they would like if they were moral or ethical people, they would take a step back. Just because on its face it sounds fake. like I know. And let's just talk about what actually happened just before we move on. Um, 227 out of 290 lawmakers urged the judiciary to consider severe punishments for those involved in the riots. I don't know what they consider a severe punishment, okay? Mm-hmm. And so they talk about that in the letter. They say, um, you know, we ask the judiciary to treat those in a way that would serve a good lesson in the shortest time possible. Sounds mm-hmm. ominous, right? And who the fuck knows what they're talking about? Long jail sentences? I have no idea. But but to turn it into that, I think is, um, it's a lot, you know? And it's... It sounds like the North Korea fake news we would we would often be Right, no. I mean, even though I've never heard of anything that outlandish coming from the news about North Korea. That's what's so mm-hmm. alarming about this. It's like, wow, are we really upping the ante to this extreme degree? We are. Damn, and, the, and then the woman who's the representative of this movement here who just keeps going on all the Bill Maher and all these shows yeah. like, seems really sketchy. I mean, I don't know. I don't I don't even remember her name, but she just seems like almost like that Somali woman who was like and it is like a popular among like the Islamophobic like neocon think tanks for a while. Forget her name. Like, oh, right, 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 right. Or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, she, yeah. she seems like similar to that. Like it's like. Optic. Yeah, just a woman who lives in the U.S. Yeah, know? it's it's weird. I mean, but again, like it does seem like this is more streamlined than like the anti-China engine. Like when they put out people, it's more random and slapdash, like that weird fake whistleblower mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, who went on Tucker once. This seems more streamlined and like boosted by like a, a more pe- like just coherent system that's like, let's just get this woman out everywhere. Right. And she, and it'll just like lock in this narrative. Um so I don't really know what's going on, but 
I mean, I do know that I know, I know some Iranians personally who have started to talk about things in a way that they never talked about before, like on social media, which is surprising to see. Um, and that, but that's really all I can say about it. I mean, it's not, you know, I think the m primary concern for me is that like a country like Israel and the United States will be jumping in there immediately to exacerbate any protest. I mean, and that's just a fact, like they, that's yeah, what they're going to right. do. So you could support female liberation and the movement to, you know, not have mm -hmm. mandatory hijabs and not conflate it with the need for humanitarian intervention and pretend and convince yourself that the United States and Israel somehow give a fuck about women's rights. I mean, let's not be fooled. So we, we aren't the engine to deliver that to anyone. And if you think that, then you've been duped from that and you can still support Iranian women and listen to the voices of Iranians who live inside in the diaspora. Like actual ones who seem like they're, that they're not fucking like agents. <laughs> like, right. And which no, is exactly. probably a little bit difficult to do unless you like have a personal connection of some kind to someone there or, you know, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, it's a whole ball of yarn, but I always have to side with, you know, a government, not, not siding with the government, but siding with the right for a country to deal with their own business and have the U.S., shouldn't fucking have any say whatsoever fuck the u.s so that's always my default position exactly um, regardless of how egregious you know any human rights abuse situation is we have we have created holocausts so i don't care you know what we have to say we have no leg to stand on so unfortunately something happened that was very very predictable um a lot of People in the LGBT community were, of course, extremely impacted by the Pulse nightclub shooting that happened, I believe, in, I want to say 2014, but I, I could be wrong about that. Um, horrific mass shooting that it wasn't clear or not. You know, there was a lot of people trying to spin that. Was he making a commentary about Afghanistan? Was it an ISIS attack? Was, it a, was he secretly gay? Was he anti-gay? All sorts of stuff. But I think we could, what you can boil down from that one is that he specifically targeted a gay club. He specifically targeted it. So regardless of what you think of his motives, the victims were all LGBT people, and he did that deliberately. So it, it makes sense why the gay community would be like, that would be like a huge impact on them, and that that would be like in the back of their mind. So here we have all this grooming hysteria, all of a sudden now drag queens are under fire as being like groomers for doing like drag time story hour, which is something that's been going on for probably since we've been born, even before in this country. It's like a drag tradition. I don't really, I mean, I obviously I'm suspicious that this is somehow being like engineered beyond just regular GOP culture war politics. It feels like playing with fire. It feels very dangerous um, for this rhetoric to be going out there. But Something that I think a lot of people could have predicted would happen is another mass shooting happened in a, a club uh, that was, ha and I think it, it was, I'm not sure if it was a gay club. It was. Okay. It, are you reading the doc? Cause I have little. I am, but I don't. Okay. Uh, it was, okay. it was, it was a gay club. Yeah. It was, a, it was according to witnesses, it was the only gay safe space in all of Colorado Springs. Yeah. So this club, which is in a tiny little strip mall. Um, called Club Q, 
uh, a shooter who I believe is only 22 years old, uh, came in with body armor, not just like crazy impulsive guy who snapped the a couple hours earlier and walked in with a gun. This guy was planning this. He just like other previous mass shootings that we've seen where it gets really dark, where it's like, you know, premeditated in the whole sense of the word in every sense, like writing manifesto, buying things way in advance, buying the body armor, getting the ammo, everything prepared. This guy was as prepared as you could be, except luckily, well, not luckily, 17 people were shot and injured and five people died, which was absolutely horrific. The only silver lining to this was that a guy who had military training, who happened to be there, uh, basically pistol whipped the fuck out of this piece of fucking garbage and told other club goers to just start stomping his face. And they found a vulnerable spot in his body armor where they just started to kick the fucking shit out of him. And let's just say that if there is a plot in this country, strategy of tension, op, um, to get people like me to want to like crush the skulls of homophobes, it is totally working. Like I, <laughs> I have not felt more violent rage. I haven't, I can't remember the last time I felt violent rage like this and just the excitement I experienced when hearing about the way they beat this guy up. Like I was like getting like excited. I mean, so things are really heightened. Like if I'm feeling this and someone's going in there trying to kill gay people, and let's just also say that if this, you know, if this was about the grooming hysteria, what is so surreal about this is what did we, what do we only know about the shooter now is that his father was a state assembly member. Grandfather. Grandfather was a state assembly member who was anti-gay and that his mom was um, like a pro-insurrection, like gun nut on social media. So let's talk about grooming for a second. I mean, it honestly, to me, seems like there are literal children being groomed to be insane psychopaths. Like, and what is actually, so if you want to talk about grooming, that's where I see the grooming happening. This kid seemed, I mean, and I don't know, I don't think there's been any real information about this kid, which is surprising. Um, but I mean, I don't know, how do you see it, Abby? Because it's, it, it does seem like all we know about it is it's like, was this kid just a product of his upbringing? Like their parents created like a child mass shooter to enact I mean, their own bigotry? Like, I, I, I mean, don't know. They are, I do think it's a result of this grooming hysteria and the narrative that trans people are grooming children. Um, based on what we know so far, that this one safe space for trans people specifically too because it happened on the trans day of remembrance yeah and the club was planning to commemorate trans people who lost their lives due to violence at their drag brunch event and that's when the attack you know i guess it happened the night before or something Ugh. like that and so to come in and just try to mow down as many people as possible and then you know amazingly to have your face stomped in by trans women um, is just, yeah, I mean, it's just really incredible because this this is not something that happens often where assailants are taken down by people who are surrounding them. And it oddly, just coincidentally, it happened like only a few days before in a methadone clinic where nobody actually got shot. I don't know if you saw this video. 
Um, a white guy walks into a methadone clinic. I don't know what grievances or reason motives he had. Points a long gun straight at the fucking guy behind the desk. And a guy who was in there in the methadone clinic just fucking grabs the gun and tackles the guy immediately. Holy shit. And he's just down. Um, and yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, so wow. like that is really rare to see. And it's right. very heroic, obviously. And people have been killed multiple times trying to do that. So I'm not saying take someone's gun away if you see that, but like. No, I mean, it's <laughs> it's amazingly heroic. We know what happens to people who do try to do that. Look at the Kyle Rittenhouse thing. Mm-hmm. Um, their stories somehow get twisted as they deserve to be shot when they're just trying to save other people from getting shot. But um, I, you know, to your point about who's grooming who, I mean, Let's talk about the grooming of children into militarism and the worshiping of gun yeah. culture and empire in this country and what this hysteria is doing to terrify normies in, you know across the country who don't know trans people. It's just hearkening back just to the gay scare and the AIDS scare. And it's absolutely devastating that this is the obvious consequence you know and of course they're going to paint this away they're going to paper over it and just pretend like it's about mental illness and stuff like that but there is a a, there has to be a part of this that we have to start recognizing that right-wing extremism is is dangerous and that this is the shit that it results in yeah and i mean fortunately the mainstream media largely is covering this from the angle of not mental illness but like this was clearly like a bigoted attack Mm -hmm. um so that's good but then of course that creates a whole range of reactionary you know knee-jerk reactions from people are the classic lineup of people we always talk about where like you know i wouldn't be surprised at all if glenn greenwald has already written by now a think piece about how we need to defend the libs of tiktok from this Mm -hmm. assault you know, like this assault to get them canceled. From the elites. Yeah. From the elites. Which I just should yeah. just throw out there. The libs of TikTok lawyer has like actual connections to the Israeli government. Like literally. I mean, it's a very strange thing that this account has gotten so much traction. I don't know what it is, but it's an odd thing. It's not just some old lady sitting behind her computer. There's something else to it. Um, so that's that's all I really have to say about that account. But I will just say solidarity uh to all you know lgbt brothers and sisters out there um our heart goes out to you this is a horrible tragedy and i i would say that it's not crazy to start considering getting armed in some fashion or to at least uh start thinking about self-defense um at the bare minimum uh because you can't you can't hide you know you you need to be able to enjoy your lives and safety and i i really do think that it's not it's really not crazy at this point to think about doing that um especially if you're trans like i so i don't know i mean there's 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 not really many people advocating for this but there is sort of more of an anarcho born uh sort of like queer mentality that's been around for a while where there has been like a militantly like we will fucking beat the shit out of you if you are a homophobe almost like in the same way it's like you know nazis get punched 
there what there what there has been a a vein of that running through more of the fringes of gay culture for a long time but it, i don't think it's it's not gotten you know the i think it needs a little more attention now honestly so um those are my thoughts on it yeah i mean it's just sad that people they want people to go back in the shadows you know mm-hmm. with all the progress that's been made in this country and all the threats that are accumulating against these marginalized communities and it's it's sad that it has to be at that point where we're now urging like militant action and self-defense but that unfortunately as we agitate more toward the civil war type mentality that's going to target people like trans people who are already very marginalized in society that's what needs to happen people need to start showing up um for people and protecting them so whether that looks like you know people outside of the uh, outside of gay clubs being ready to you know offer some sort of security or protection or i don't know mobilizations that are helping some sort of community support and and training and um you know organizing i i don't know what that looks like but we need to start having these conversations because this is the reality that we live in now yeah or even something as simple as like if you have you know if you know a lot of gay people in the community i wouldn't even say it's it's not even that crazy at this point to be like let's just you know how many of you guys have actually shot a firearm let's go all go down to the firing range one day just to know what just to have some basic experience shooting a firearm because if you've never shot one before the concept of it is a lot more scary i think for most people um just being able to handle one and shoot one at least gives you a little bit of confidence that it's like you'll know what to do in a tough situation you know rather than just completely freaking out and so um again if that sounds crazy to people i apologize but that is that's where i'm at right now um i just got to be honest yeah it's like i just saw someone to segue into this next story i saw someone selling a shirt on instagram that said kill the russians with a picture of a cartoon picture of a decapitated head and holding it and it was like a girl like a girl model posing and she was just like buy my shirt and i was like this is first of all the fact that this is able to be sold is just surreal but i mean i would i want to fucking wear a shirt that says like crush the homophobes or something (laughs) i mean fuck it dude but like it's just so crazy that that advocating like the mass murder of an entire nationality is just um condoned sponsored not taken down as hate speech um wild times that we're living in robbie yeah it's funny too because even during the cold war i don't think that i mean first of all you never would have never heard a liberal talk that way but i don't even think like conservative anti-communist people were that vociferous like in the 80s i mean i just found a shirt that i was really happy to come across at a vintage shop that says the russians aren't coming the russians aren't coming the russians aren't coming <laughs> Uh, the 1984 Olympics. It was like a, it was like an, I don't, it wasn't an official Olympic shirt, but it looks very like 80s classic Olympic shirt. Um, so that's the kind of stuff that was happening in the 80s, you know, Rocky Four. I don't remember people wearing t-shirts that said kill Russians when I was a kid. Um, Showing decapitated yeah. heads, like just holding it. Yeah, We're in a new era, mean. baby. We're, this is a new era we're going into. Well, talk really quickly about the missile that everyone was saying that was Russia and then it turned out to be Ukraine. I mean, is yes. that confirmed? That's yes, it is. crazy. So this is the craziest part about this. For people who are not following the Ukraine situation, 
very closely. There's been a lot of talk, of course, some of it's hyperbolic saying that, you know, there's going to be nuclear war soon, although this is a potential pathway to that. That's, I can't deny that. Um, one thing did happen over the course of the past couple of weeks that was a very scary incident that for a good 24 hours, it was like, wait a second, is this, are we going to go to war with like war with Russia now? I was worried personally. Um, and a lot of other people were too, for good reason. And that was because, uh, some pieces of a missile landed in Poland and actually killed some people from, from the Ukrainian war, right? Immediately Zelensky announces that this was a Russian missile. And for anybody who knows about what NATO's jobs is or what their protocol is, that allows, that would allow the United States or other NATO members to activate what is known as Article 5, which means that a NATO nation must defend or has the duty to defend against an attack. That would be an attack on a NATO nation by Russia if that happened. That would be a huge mistake on Russia's part or, or just a, a horrible error to do something like that. So, so Zelensky literally out there asking to activate article five, like not just, you know, sort of sneakily being like, Hey, this, this missile's Russian. Like, what are you guys going to do? He was actually overtly trying to push for it. And luckily someone in the Biden administration, other people in NATO actually put the brakes on it. And they did their own investigation. They contradicted what Zelensky said, only in the sense that they were like, we don't know that this is a Russian missile. But then eventually it was investigated, even the Washington Post uh, now reports, that the, Rus that the missile that landed in Poland may have been Ukrainian. Um, and I think it's a they've actually gone further now to confirm that it was. So very fascinating to think that Zelensky, this fucking ex-stand-up comedian, like puppet you know, ruler of Ukraine actually was trying to start like a NATO article five initiation for what could have been a full blown war over something that, you know, is clearly not the case, uh, what, what he's saying. So I'm not saying this was like a false flag in the sense that they did this on purpose, but I don't think you can entirely rule that out either. I mean, I don't think you can hundred percent be like, there's no way that, you know, Ukraine or somebody in the crazy in the u.s wanted to like initiate article five we know how fucking insane the you know this the the u.s empire is so i just don't know but that's all we know for now and luckily uh that's not the narrative anymore there's no i don't think there's any chance of anybody reversing this and being like no it was russia because here's right. why like bellingcat you know, I don't even really see like what what's Bellingcat's like organization even up to. You would think that they would be the ones right now being like, no, here's a hundred satellite photos showing how it was a Russian missile because of this truck that came from like, you know, you look at all the Google Street views. If you could sit through all this uh, data, we're gonna you're gonna be really convinced by the end of it that this for sure came from Russia. Um, so I don't I don't see that happening. So I have a little hope that there's you know that there does seem to be some breaks even if they're very, very, very minimal coming from the Biden White House, that is not, at least not like throwing more just gallons of gas onto the fire right now. They're, they're throwing gas onto it, but they're not throwing as much as they were, you know, maybe last month. 
terms of the right. Rhetoric. They're not they're not rushing to invoke Article Five. I mean, there was definitely exactly. cooler heads that prevailed. I was surprised to see the lag in response time, considering the narrative that was so strong right from the get, which is that Russia fired this missile and it landed in Poland, and oh my God, what are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. You know, and usually when there's that amount of pressure from a story that 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 that's like that, you know, in the middle of this war where it's like, okay, that's the red line. That's the red line. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that there was no response was surprising. And of course, as we as as usually happens, the story completely changes just days later. And thank fucking God for that, man. Because there's been so many just hair triggers that could just escalate into a full-blown nuclear standoff. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just really alarming that this war just continues. And again, it's just this cartoon binary. It's very hard to talk about it. It's just so little nuance. But both, I mean, Ukraine is doing a lot of fucked up shit too. You know? I mean, it's, to me, it just seems like both sides are just playing really, really dirty. I mean, I would say that Russia seems to have a surprising amount of restraint considering that they fucking, you know, invaded Ukraine. I mean, it's, I'm, a, and I say restraint, meaning I'm surprised that, like, so many Russian troops have died. I'm surprised that Russia hasn't done better in the war. Um, but then again, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of money going. In. It's not like Ukraine is winning this war in any sense. They're they're completely being propped up by the U.S. Not just with money, but like with actual infrastructure that is sort of you know like Starlink. For people who don't know, um, and this is something that we've already kind of talked about on two different episodes. One was with me and Abby. One was a solo episode. But one of the strangest things about Elon Musk in this Ukraine situation is he got accused of being like taking orders from Putin recently or relaying a message from Putin about how to de-escalate the war on Twitter. It was like one tweet saying like we should have some kind of diplomatic de-escalation or something. Um, So that was, you know, weird, but it also gives him, it makes him seem like he's going against the establishment, right? When people go after you for being like a Russian agent or a Putin puppet it makes you, it kind of gives you a little bit of an edge. Like you look, you appear that you are actually going against some kind of status quo when that happens. But what's very surreal about it is he has been an integral part of helping the Ukrainian army get a leg up or be able to withstand the Russian army. And specifically, uh, this is something that came from Alan McLeod's um, article about Elon Musk, which I recommend uh, most people read. We covered most of the same stuff in our podcast, but it's called Elon Musk is not a renegade outsider. He's a massive Pentagon contractor from May 31st, 2022. But I thought the most, at least the most interesting part of this article for me is that Alan McLeod quotes another article talking about Starlink. And basically what Starlink is, it's a satellite-based uh isolated internet connection system where if like Russia said bomb the entire cable line system and like all the phone lines or, or phone hubs or internet hubs in Ukraine, it would still allow a lot of people in Ukraine to use the internet. Well, not all people. And let me just specify this is that one of the interesting facts that, that um, Alan McLeod 
reported in this article was that most of the terminals uh, being given, and the, you know the keyword is given because they're not really being given. USAID uh, actually paid for these, so something like over ten thousand uh, Starlink terminals were sent to Ukraine, and almost all of them were given to the Ukrainian army specifically. Um, which is very odd because Starlink was supposed to be like this launch of like a new type of internet system just for like people like you and me could use it if we want. I know someone who's using it because they live out in the mountains. It is easier for certain people to, you know, this actually is an interesting technology in the sense that it does allow certain people to get internet just through a satellite dish, which is something that I don't, I don't think really was widely available before. So anyways, it's not like these are just being given to the Ukrainian people to get them to stay online or whatever. It's being used by the Ukrainian army to target Russian forces specifically. This is what a, a, a Ukrainian soldier told the journalist named David Patrick Karakos, David Patrick Karakos, quote, Starlink is what changed the war in Ukraine's favor. Russia went out of its way to blow up all our comms. Now they can't. Starlink works under Katyusha fire, under artillery fire. It even works in Mariupol. One Ukrainian journalist told, uh, sorry, one, that's what one Ukrainian soldier said to this journalist. Um, so it's very, very odd that Elon Musk has this sort of like renegade outsider status, even in regards to the Ukraine war, when he at least seems to be like a huge integral part of what's happening right now. That's what's so weird about it is that he's just constantly um, idolized by all of these people who like really love Russia because he said a couple tweets about how Russia should negotiate with Ukraine, I guess, and mm -hmm. how ideas. Which is a over pretty Twitter. boilerplate thing that he yeah, said. Yeah, no, of and course. Not that much later, the Biden administration and other you know, Democrats started to put out similar messaging. So it's like, wasn't really off the reservation. In yeah, but he also just started form. talking about how we need, pol like if Crimea, the polls, like people just need to take polls in Donbass and Donbass. Oh my Crimea, God, he said, then, he said that. Yeah, and like Weird. if they, and then if the polling, you know, results are that the majority want to secede, then they will. And it's just like, you're a fucking idiot, dude, just stop. And it's just also so weird because he's doing this Starlink thing that is, legitimately like one of the most intrusive tools which to help facilitate russians deaths it's really bizarre it's hard to understand what he's trying to do i mean part of me almost thinks that he wants some kind of focus on him in this way that's like a head fake or something like because did you see what biden said when the reporter asked if they're gonna like look into elon musk for like national security concerns and uh no and biden actually said like yeah there's like we have like reason to like want to do that or something he said something in response just like dude what like you're just making him look like more like he's an outsider like what is so it's weird to think that he's actually been a huge part of helping the ukrainians fight in this proxy war for the u.s but then like in public like biden is acting like he needs to be investigated for national security concerns because of the russia shit i mean it's just it doesn't make sense is all i'm saying so i i just think there is a deeper game going on here i don't i mean again i have no idea I'm speculating but it is odd um 
And it it's like, what is, you know, why, why wouldn't the Biden administration at least want to keep a, a cordial relationship with him and Starlink optically just because of that? So I don't get it. But yeah, he's trying to play both sides. I mean, he's yeah. trying to keep his subsidization by the government alive. Uh, you know, keep keep up the good relationship with the U.S. by doing all this shit with Starlink. I mean, I don't know how much uh, he's getting in contracts with them to do this, but um, but yeah, I mean, he's definitely playing up rhetorically with all like the MAGA right wingers. He's just become like a pathetic MAGA repu- reply guy on Twitter, and that's. We catered to this whole image of, you know, taking this middle ground on the Russia situation, which is just so contrary to his actual real life actions with his company. And he just straight up said that everyone should vote for yeah, oh yeah. Republicans yeah. that... Yeah, but Robbie, he's an independent. He favors DeSantis for president. I mean, this but is... But Robbie, he's an independent. He's not a Republican. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like that we talked about last time. It's like, no, 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 like, he's not a Republican. <laughs> like, we are calling Elon Musk right wing. <laughs> You're calling Russell Brand right when he's like, yeah, dude, I am. You would call someone a Democrat for saying like the bare minimum of like any Democrat signaling. So fuck off. Like, get over yourself. You're calling Jordan Peterson right wing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So if anybody didn't see this, and Abby, I don't know if you're looking at the doc, but I wanted I you to cue this, this up at the same time okay. with me. Two different clips. The, um, we'll start this clip one. Start this clip on. This is actually of Ben Shapiro uh, first. We're going to start off with him. But basically, let me just give you a little preamble to what clip this is. Um, so the Daily Wire, of course, is the organization that that uh, employs Candace Owens. I didn't realize it, but they also employ Jordan Peterson. So, right. Which is kind of just fascinating to think that there's anybody claiming he's not far right at this point. I mean, the Daily Wire is like, it's like neocon. It's not even like trying to be like really that MAGA. Candace Owens is probably the most MAGA of the bunch, but in reality, it's pretty just, it's like Bush era, you know, really boilerplate, like even pre-MAGA conservatism. Mm-hmm. So it's an odd thing for Jordan Peterson to go to this one. But again, Jordan Peterson did bring on Fred Kagan onto his own podcast to discuss Ukraine. The only Ukraine segment he did Um so that I thought was a little odd. It's like, how did he get linked up with Fred Kagan? Uh, you know, someone that anybody listening to your podcast should know about already. But so they got a sit-down interview. The Daily Wire did like a sit-down interview that looked like extremely professionally filmed with Netanyahu. And it included Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson going to Israel, linking up with the Israeli government, the Likudniks, and like doing like speeches, talks, and also going to the like Al-Aqsa mosque and saying that it's like discriminatory towards Jews and like advocating for like <laughs> settlers to be able to like worship there, you know, like stuff like that, which again is maybe not that surprising, Abby, but it's also just a little weird, I think, to see Jordan Peterson getting involved in this. Um, and, you know, whenever I see anybody do stuff like this, my first assumption is that the Israeli government is actually like somehow paying for this to some extent. But again, mm-hmm. Ben Ben Shapiro is like really orthodox. He's very, he seems really serious, even though he seems like a total phony robot. I can't say that he's not really seriously a practicing orthodox Jew, but he does seem like a just completely fake. So at the same time, it's like, is this guy playing a character? Would it, would it be weird if you found out Ben Shapiro was like completely non-religious, like an atheist, and this is just like a character? 
he's playing. Yeah. I mean, so all that aside, I wanted to first have you play this clip okay. um, starting around. Where, I where got did it. it start? 158. Like? Ready? 158. Um, I want I want to hear your reaction on this. He governs that universe in a fashion we can investigate. Now, we are in the process, unfortunately, in the West of caricaturing the Bible, of mocking it, of forgetting it. The root text of the West is being abandoned in favor of a sort of free-floating rationalism, this idea that we can come up with anything out of our minds. Without the premises of Sinai, that rationalism collapses in on itself like a dying star. After all, what good does reason do in a godless, reasonless, purposeless universe? In the words of Isaiah, <laughs> The Torah will come forth from Zion and the word of God from Yerushalayim. Thank you so much. Watch this way you can go. So that's so that's that clip. What is the ICC Israel? Is it the International Criminal Court Israel? <laughs> what is that? Okay, well, so he just looks like an infant. I mean, I know. I forget the fact that I I don't know how how tall he really is. I think that that's like a misconception that he's really like this extremely short person. But I mean, he's he just looks like an infant, and so when he has this beard, it's like deeply unsettling. It is deeply unsettling, like a, and you could also tell that he is. It's like he's, you could see he's starting to age in a way that people who reach puberty, like, don't look like, like, right, right. where like, it's almost like you, you're looking at a child who's starting to get like dark circles and bags under his eyes and like slight, like age wrinkles and like crow's feet and stuff. And I think that he's like fighting a battle where he probably, probably too superficial to actually get work done on his face, but he is, he is, well, Maybe not. Okay, maybe you're okay, right. Okay, let's let's but, let's go to the next. Okay, but if you look at video of him recently, he's wearing a lot of makeup, a lot. Yeah. Like he's he's trying to maintain this like eternal childlike <laughs> appearance. Okay, ready to do the next one. Okay, so this let's one is great one. because Jordan Peterson speaks next, and it's not just at a podium; it is like a fucking like pep talk, like a let's like a it, clean dude, your ready. room thing. So hold on, let me. Clean your room and throw snowballs, baby. Let's go. Dr. Jordan Peterson. This is a little on the long side for, for a minute, but just let it go because it's pretty insane. I'm surprised this did not get more traction. Oh my God. Is that going to take time? Yeah. Thank you. Oh my God. So, thank you. Thank you. I like how they captioned someone giving him praise. The feeling the is audience. mutual. Uh-huh. Most of the positive emotion that you experience that makes life worth living, analgesic positive emotion, anxiolytic positive emotion, the positive emotion that gives you hope and curiosity and drives you forward, that's experienced in relationship to a unified goal. And the higher the goal, the more hope and positive emotion that's experienced as you view yourself making incremental progress Sounds like a regular pep talk at first. So right? you need a unified was, goal that's, that's transcendent in order to quell anxiety and to give you hope. Are you telling the greatest story ever told? Well, you decide that by how you live. And that decision will affect the world because everyone looks here for one reason or another. It's not so easy to understand. Everyone looks here to see, well, how are you actually doing under this tremendous assault of adversarial criticism as this little tiny people in the middle of no man's wow. land in some real sense. <laughs> like as a, what would you say? Cardinal model of the nation state no and the city on the hill. You have a tremendous moral responsibility like you have perhaps for your entire history some for reasons that are very difficult yeah, to understand. It gets worse. And I think it is true in some real sense 
that the fate of the world depends on the decisions of the people of Israel, just as the fate of the world depends. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty wow. fucking wild. Wow, 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 wow. And he's crying. He's straight up fucking tearing up. Oh, again. Okay. Just as the fate of the world depends on the decision of every individual, so you make yourself a shining light on the hill, right? You attract people here because of what you're capable of doing. You show the world what the holy city oh could look God. like. <gasps> because we need it. Oh we need it. And it's up God. to you to do it. We need it. We need it. We need it. It's up to you. Wait, what? Yeah, look at him. Okay. Hold on. Wait, are we done? Yeah, we're done. I mean, so I, I, I'm glad you hadn't seen this yet because I knew you dude. would especially love it. <laughs> I mean, what's first of all, it starts off like a perverted Terrence McKenna um, rant about like consciousness, and yeah, it yeah. just dovetails into an apologia for settler colonialism, and basically saying that I mean, for the same reasons that Israel is so essential for U.S. imperialism, it's like very essential for these people to just perpetrate this narrative that. It, it's the most important thing um, and that people have this divine purpose to like succeed there because it really embodies the success of empire. Like it's, it's the U.S.'s settler colony as much as, as it is Israel and its ideological success is important to preserve the myths of our country too. So it actually is perfect, this kind of clash of civilizations mentality that people like Jordan Peterson love to just put front and center um, quite despicable and unsurprising and of course you know i was gonna say oh he seems more put together this time but within one minute he's already crying so he's already crying and people fucking eat it up dude and what's also we love you jp yeah it was and they just like how they subtitled it too so you knew <laughs> like they didn't subtitle anything else in that they're just the love you jp um but what's really i mean you're 100 right what you're saying and then what's also really especially disgusting about how he's framing it He's making it seem like the adversarial criticism that they get across the world, which is doesn't get very amplified, you know, unless what is he talking about? Like the UN uh, Human Rights Council's like votes or something? Like, yes, yeah, saying that they can't just ac wantonly execute 60 people in one day. Yeah, so he's acting snipers. like that adversarial criticism of this tiny little peoples who are facing this such abhorrent treatment by getting criticized is the problem. Which is fascinating because it's like, it just goes to show what kind of a sociopath sick monster he is to make it seem like criticism is like hurtful and is like somehow beating them down when they're literally subjugating a pop segregated population of Muslim Palestinians in like an open air prison. It's just fascinating. But Robbie, it's no man's land. There, there's no Palestinians living there. They're all just degenerate animals, subhumans who just lived in, you know, it's a people without a place and a place without a people. That's the whole fucking myth, man. And he was just, it's just beautiful to hear people like him talk about how this was just a barren land, you it's, know? It's absolutely disgusting. And unfortunately, I didn't want to bite the bullet and pay for a Daily Wire subscription. The, <laughs> the actual sit-down interview with Netanyahu is behind oh, no. a paywall. But what's interesting in it is they advertise clips of it that make it seem like Netanyahu is like talking a bunch of trash about Obama and they're sort of having a back and forth about it. Peterson, Shapiro, and Netanyahu. Um, so uh, maybe I'll I'll p bite the bullet, get it just to be able to like play clips of it on the on a future episode because I'm sure there's some juicy, weird shit in there too. Um, 
but again, why is Jordan Peterson all of a sudden like an Israeli lobbyist, basically? Like, where, where did this come from? Was this always sort of happening? Because you got to remember, I mean, and I'm not, I'm not trying to spin a conspiracy sponsored here. Sponsored by Daily Wire. I mean, sponsored by Ben Shapiro, you know? But even I mean, go back like, further, Abby, who right. was the one who coined the term the intellectual dark web and wrote a New York Times op-ed mm-hmm. that included Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, Eric Weinstein, like right. total fucking, like another employee of Peter Thiel, just like, and, and Barry Weiss is a literal Israeli government paid lobbyist who got speaking gigs for Israeli government funded lobbying group. It, you can't make it up. I mean, it's just strange to think that is, is that part of what's going on here that the intellectual dark web are all like secret Zionist? I mean, even Brett Weinstein. Of course. Guy- I mean, it, well, Jordan Peterson's whole Messiah complex. I mean, it, it makes perfect sense because he's going deeper and deeper into these religious like rants, yeah. you know, and making it all about this kind of theology. And so it does kind of make sense now that he's linked up with Ben Shapiro that they're doing this shit, you know? It does. I mean, it makes sense. And it's also just like people do not care or comment on. There's still a lot of people I know who are libertarian who still like Jordan mm-hmm. Peterson and stuff. And it's like, do not understand that what, like, what he is. It's just, it's just weird what's able to be, you know, just like DeSantis. I mean, people in the right. Mises caucus, this p- group that took over the Libertarian Party, still act like DeSantis is like super anti establishment, even though his actual congressional record shows him being like more crazy than Marco Rubio. It's just, it's surreal. It doesn't make sense, but people just eat up anything these days. Well, speaking of Ron DeSantis, Robbie, we have a little bombshell story from my husband, um, Mike Preisner. um, An amazing, amazing scoop that I already see is making some waves on in the little ecosystem that we wade in, which is, which is great to see. I'm going to bring actually my husband in here in this conversation right now to wrap up this episode by talking about it himself. Mike Preisner, welcome to Media Roots Radio. Hi. Hi, Mike. Good good to have you on again. And just so people know where this came from, uh, your podcast, Eyes Left, um, you did an interview with, uh, let me make sure, well, you actually, I'll let you pronounce his name because I don't want to sound like a total piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> Mansoura Dafi. Yeah, you did an interview with Mansoura Dafi about him being present at Guantanamo Bay and and he's actually a detainee that has been released from Guantanamo Bay uh present during torture and DeSantis being there at Guantanamo Bay for this military role of being you know people refer to him as a JAG officer he was there specifically to oversee the situation at Guantanamo Bay to make sure it was following legal human rights protocol did i did i get everything correct or or am i missing anything or well let me let me just preempt what you're going to say mike by saying this too um it's amazing because ron DeSantis has served as governor of one of the most populous and significant states for some time and he's this gop hero who could rise as the gop frontrunner for the 2024 presidency i mean it's shaping up where he's going to be facing trump potentially And yet no media outlet, no media outlet has looked into what he has actually done as a JAG officer at both Guantanamo Bay and Iraq. Yes. And Bill Kristol and David French, uh, the Lincoln Project are all suddenly kind of soft endorsing him or pivoting 
towards him being as like a potential, you know, Republican party savior. So, I mean, that should say it all, but take it away, Mike. So yeah, Mike talk about why you even decided to look into this story. Yeah. Well, first of all, Robbie, uh, Mansoura Defi, he was one of, you know, the majority of prisoners at Guantanamo had, had never committed a crime. And a lot of them were there for the same reason Mansoor was there. You know, right after 9-11, the U.S. government made a deal with warlords in Afghanistan and Pakistan and just said, hey, uh, give us give us the terrorists and we'll give you bounties for them. And so, of course, they rounded up uh, both political opponents and just random teenagers and other people and just basically sold them to the CIA for a lot of money saying that they were Al-Qaeda or whatever when, you know, most of them had had never done anything except uh, oppose the warlord or or make the warlord not like them for what whatever reason or another. So Mansoor was kidnapped when he was a teenager by these warlords and then sold after 9-11 to the CIA. And so, yeah, he was like many detainees there was there for that because of that exact program that the CIA had been running. And, you know, I got interested in this story um, because... Like you were saying, Abby, he's been a public figure for a little bit. He's really risen as a national figure since COVID, which, you know, he went through kind of a suspicious rebranding operation because he was always kind of like a boring congressman and governor before. Even in the first two years in uh, as the governor of Florida, his like main policy initiative was like uh, clean water and like saving the Everglades, you know, like nothing interesting, you know, just yeah, very yeah. like, you know, a Democrat could have done that. Um, so, you know, becoming like this right wing culture warrior was like a recent thing. But anyways, you know, when he ran for governor in 2018, there was some interest by the media in what his actual military experience was. And so you look at that's really when the most reporting was done on DeSantis's background. And when you look at it, it all just takes Navy spokespeople and his heavily redacted military records at face value, where all of the media, mostly Florida press, says, what did DeSantis do at Guantanamo? Well, he was there ensuring the human rights of detainees and ensuring that they, uh, that Guantanamo was in compliance with international law. Now, any- closed. <laughs> yeah, closed. and what a good and, guy. And I think the big, uh, the big alarm bells for me was he was there in the year 2006 which was the height of the Bush torture program. And so seeing that contradiction, you know, how is it possible that DeSantis could have been, that that even Guantanamo at all was having bringing in <laughs> attorneys to ensure that the human rights are being respected. 2006 is the same year, you know, DeSantis gets there in March 2006. May 2006, uh, a United Nations Human Rights Board met and, and determined that Guantanamo Bay was in such violation of international law that the whole camp had to be shut down from everything from indefinite detention without charge, torture, and all of that. And so the, the whole world knew that Guantanamo was in violation of international law, yet the mainstream media and Florida press could kind of unquestionably say like, oh, well, that's what DeSantis was doing there. He was just making sure everyone was being treated humanely. Um, and what he was brought there, that was just the official version of his job. And, and you know, he didn't come in and replace another JAG officer who was doing the same thing. That position was kind of created at the time DeSantis was sent there. And Was it created because of this UN declaration? No, okay, it was so created it was for another reason. It was created because the, the prisoners in 2005... You know, the, the the prison was just, I mean, I don't want to get into how horrific Guantanamo was, but it was horrific. And of course, you have hundreds of people who had never done anything, were just kidnapped and then were stuck there. No charge, no trial, 
assuming they're going to be there for the rest of their lives and just being brutalized horribly on a daily basis by guards who are like, you know, urinating on the Quran in front of them and you know all all types of offenses and disrespect and humiliation. And so, of course, there's, you know, prison wide organizing to protest their conditions and demand very basic human rights. Um, and so DeSantis was part of a group of people that were brought in specifically to quell these protests. The, the most uh, effective form of protest was prison-wide hunger strike. And so in 2005, there was, and, and in 2006, early 2006, when DeSantis got there, there was like a, a prison-wide hunger strike where about 500 prisoners were participating in the hunger strike. DeSantis and other officers were brought in specifically to to break this strike. I mean, uh, others were, we know that they were brought in specifically to break the strike because they attested to that. DeSantis was there supposedly to uh, help the detainees have their demands met and so that they would stop the strike. So what DeSantis did is he he came in and all the, the detainees believed him. So they're in the middle of this strike and protests and there's all these uprisings. And then you have this lawyer come in, this young officer who says, hey, I'm the lawyer here who's now going to hear your grievances and to ensure that your human rights are respected. So the detainees were, you know, believed him and thought, oh, our, our protest was effective, that now we have uh, an outlet to era grievances and this attorney is going to make sure it conforms with international law, which they should have been, you know, they probably had some idea that it was not being respected what was in under Geneva Convention. Um but what really was happening was DeSantis was getting these lists of grievances of what was the most impactful on the detainees. And so things that were hurting them the most, one of the big things being sleep deprivation, you know, that they would just intentionally create loud noise throughout the entire night. So there is really no way you could sleep. Um, other things like uh, giving them food that meat that was not halal meat and then like mixing it in with other food so they couldn't, you know, like they, they say they want to break the hunger strike, but then they made it impossible for them to eat without, you know, violating their the norms of their religion. Confided in DeSantis thinking that it was going to be a mechanism to have their human rights respected. And then all those things increased. And so it's obvious that DeSantis just played good cop, got the list of, of things that were impacting them the most, told the prison administrator so that they could increase the pain and suffering and break the strike uh, and also just continue to break down the detainees. And so that's kind of his main, his real job there. You know, the, the official language from the Navy spokespeople and other officers that he served with you know, that was his official job, but that was just the lie that they told to detainees. And I think the most scandalous part of this is that Mansoor Adafi, you know, he testifies that DeSantis, you know, was not just some administrator. He was present for the torture, the beatings, uh, the experimentation and the force feedings that, again, were another violation of international law. And not only that, I mean, I think the the part of the, the interview that I conducted with him on the, the podcast is that DeSantis took, seemed to take great pleasure in it. Uh, while Mansoor was being force-fed, and the force-feeding is pretty gruesome. You know, they take a really thick plastic tube that has like a metal uh, point at the end, and they shove it through your nose. It's huge. It's a giant tube through the nose into the stomach while you're strapped to a chair in like 10 different places, head, arms, legs, chest, everything. And then they just basically waterboards you with Ensure, the diet, you know, the nutritional drink 
insurer that has laxatives in it. So you immediately start uh, defecating yourself. And so Mansoor said as he is strapped to this chair, being just basically waterboarded with insurer, screaming, crying, defecating himself, vomiting, DeSantis was there smiling and laughing at him. Um, And so, you know, that's one person's story. It's pretty on brand for DeSantis. And so, uh, and time and time again, former detainees at Guantanamo have been proven to be very honest about their experiences. You know, I don't think there's really any reason to to doubt Mansoor's testimony. But, uh, you know, there's other people. And and the, and the other piece that I think... Well, I mean, you just have to ask yourself, what do you think a person like Ron DeSantis was doing right. at Guantanamo Bay? He was already... He was also like teaching pro Confederacy like classes like before. Yeah, he even- that's, well, high that's just a small piece that kind of helps. You know, like we know that he's a, a vicious anti-Muslim racist right. right winger now. But what is he always that way? We don't have a lot of information. But one thing we do know is that when he took a break between Yale and Harvard, you know, the two spook schools, um, he took a year to teach at some private uh, boarding school for rich kids or whatever. And his students recall one of his lessons he taught history was on the civil war that was highly sympathetic to the slaveocracy and it was like uh it kind of got to hand it to him you know the confederacy types of lessons and so i think that kind of shows that his right-wing beliefs today are not kind of new and that they have probably gone been been there for a long time and so yeah so and then the other thing that you have to wonder is you know desantis was kind of a low-ranking officer at the time yeah um, he was either was a lieutenant or a captain you know an o2 or an o3 so pretty low ranking you know, why was he, of all people, sent to Guantanamo to, knowing that they were going to send this guy saying, you know, officially your job is to oversee human rights for detain- detainees, knowing they'd be sending him into a situation where he would be seeing just gross human rights violations of the worst kind. Uh, they had to have known that he would be very willing to do that job and would be very okay with it. You know, you don't send just some young, ambitious JAG officer who's still at you know, who's a Harvard graduate. And if there is some chance that he'd be like, you know what, this is fucked up and I'm gonna, uh, you know, they must have known that his loyalty was real. And so why was it that he got that assignment? You know, there had to have been some knowledge that he would do the job and do the job well. And that's what kind of leads to the next thing is we don't know all of what he did in Iraq. Hold on, yeah, hold, sure. on hold on, hold um, on. It's not hyperbole to say that he administered and oversaw torture because even the Tokyo Convention back in 75 said that force feeding is torture, is a form of torture. This has already been internationally recognized. Um, it is not hyperbolic at all to say that Ron DeSantis was overseeing torture and getting sadistic pleasure out of it, according to this very credible former detainee's testimony. Why would Mansoor make this up? I mean, it's not like he was out there with a political motivation to do so. I mean, you're the one who sought him out, and he was just like, yep, this is actually what this guy did, because you were noticing, Mike, this omission in media coverage about what exactly it was that Ron DeSantis was doing at Guantanamo Bay. Can I just, I just wanted to drop in a comment really quickly that I think what Mike said about how, why was he chosen for this? Why, like, what was it about his psychological profile or whatever that made, you know, because let's just take us back to 2006, the Bush administration was covering up everything from every angle like that they could they mm-hmm. were there's no way that they would have thrown someone in there who wasn't completely loyal to whatever it, uh, outcome that they wanted so that i think is you know important 
to maybe even look into more like what is what were his connections to anybody even lower level people in the bush administration who may have had some reason to think that he would do exactly what they wanted um because i i just don't see any organic human rights lawyer getting in there with any chance of them saying what you said mike like this is fucked up like i don't know if i can stand by this you know um, right. Well, he was uh, he was in the same fraternity at Yale as as George W. Bush and H. W. Bush. Skull and Bones. <laughs> no, wait. some Alpha other one. Oh, oh. interesting. <laughs> interesting. Delta, oh, wait. Oh. Kappa Sigma or some shit. And just like Poppy Bush, he was a Yale. Uh, he got a scholarship from Yale for baseball uh, yeah. as well. But yeah. Anyways. Yeah. So wait, what did he have any experience doing human rights law? Like why? It's just so weird. So, it's like I know he was a lawyer no, briefly, but I mean that's that's another kind of fishy thing. I mean, his resume, you know, prior to this post at Guantanamo is super scarce and, and lame. Like one of, he was an awards officer, which means that you just process paperwork for people getting awards. He was the uh, physical fitness <laughs> training coordinator, which means you just like say, oh, we're going to do push-ups on Monday and run on Tuesday type shit. Uh, he also was in charge of uh, urinalysis administration, which is, you know, making sure everyone pees in a cup every month and someone's watching them pee and then they, they do the drug test the and they're passing their, their drug test. Yeah, so <laughs> it was all very like, the fact that those things are even on his resume means that there's really nothing there to show. Like you wouldn't put those things on your resume unless there's nothing <laughs> yeah, else yeah. and you have to be like, hey, I did something. So <laughs> his his first two years in the as a Navy JAG officer are are pretty boring and like nothing's happened. But then he gets this big break that's kind of out of out of nowhere. You know, he gets this huge break to go be this, uh, have this really important job at Guantanamo Bay. And, you know, Robbie, going back to like what you were saying about how because of the time being such a time of being shady by the Bush administration, like they would not, it, it doesn't make sense that they would send someone who would be like a risk. They would only be sending people they know are dedicated to the mission. And one thing that Mansoor says in the interview, which I thought was really stunning, Mansoor was detained there from 2002 to 2016. That's a long time. He said 2006, when DeSantis was there, was the single worst year of his entire detention. And worst year at Guantanamo is a really heavy statement. And Mike, there was also a scandal that I remember um, that, that this is how horrific this year was, is that one of the worst scandals coming out of Guantanamo happened during DeSantis's reign and tenure there. He was only there for about a year, but it was actually the worst year of torture, the worst year of corruption and um, possible murder. Yeah. So, you know, as we said, DeSantis gets there in March 2006 as the human rights guy that wins the trust of all the detainees. Uh, they set out a mission to break the hunger strike. Once the hunger strike is broken and all of the torture is increased that they told DeSantis, everyone kind of realized that that's what he was doing. So they all stopped trusting him. But then DeSantis also dropped the act. You know, he wasn't acting like he was the human rights friend anymore. Um, June 2006, when DeSantis was still there, because he was there until January 2007. So June 2006 is an incident where three, you know, there was a big kind of uprising protest. I mean, there was like, you know, like a prison riot, basically, among the detainees. And they were preparing to, to start another hunger strike. And so as this uprising was happening and the prison administrators knew that another hunger strike was going to happen, which they were very, you know, the hunger strike was like, they hate, they, it was like a major crisis for the prison administrators because it was 
would become an international situation and they didn't want any eyes on the prison. They wanted to exist in secrecy in the shadows. And the hunger strike was effective at at making it a, a crisis and a scandal. So they know that another hunger strike is going to start or has had already started. Uh, Mansoor was, was a part of that. But three others who were leaders in this, in the resistance on the, at the prison and leaders in the hunger strike. The day of the uh, riot, these three men all found in their separate cells, separate cells. All of them had been beaten. Uh, their hands and feet were tied together. Uh, they were hanging by their necks, and they all both had large pieces of cloth that were stuffed down their throats. Um, we know for a fact that DeSantis was there at the time. This is uh, the the Navy did their own autopsy, of course, and uh, said that they were suicides. And how could three guys have committed suicide the same way in the same night in their own cells? Well, they had a suicide pact, and their suicides were... Again, a form of jihad against the prison, and it was all just a tactic to hurt the prison and all of that. You know, the New York Times reported this as suicides, uh, you know, the day that it happened. Um, And then that was that was it. It was highly suspicious. You know, the families, you know, couldn't do their own autopsy because the Navy shipped the bodies to their home countries with all of the organs removed and pieces of their throat removed. That would have indicated the true, uh, you know, foul play and stuff like that. Uh, so DeSantis was there at the time, and it wasn't until 2015 that another narrative came out, and that's when a book was published called Murder at Camp Delta by a man named Staff Sergeant Joseph Hickman, who was a guard at Guantanamo at the time, who was actually one of the people that you know helped put down the prison rebellion. Um, so he was a, an active participant in the, the repression at the prison at the time, but he asserts that those men were definitely murdered uh, and tortured to death and murdered to set an example so that they could, you know, fight this hunger strike and the the organizing by the prisoners. So, you know, that is, if we know that this was like, at the time, if it was like a big issue because nobody had died at Guantanamo. I mean, in the post 9-11 life of Guantanamo and all these people were brought there, there were zero deaths. And so these deaths were the only deaths to have happened in that, you know, in the five, almost five years up until that point at Guantanamo Bay. So it was a big deal. And so if you have these high-profile deaths that the New York Times is writing about, and obviously people are looking into because the torture at Guantanamo, conditions at Guantanamo are a, you know, this was big even in American politics. Obama had to campaign on closing down Guantanamo for a reason because it was a big issue. So when all of a sudden you have these three very suspicious deaths come out, at a time when there's so much eyes on Guantanamo for the human rights violations, you have to imagine DeSantis had some kind of involvement. <laughs> right. And if you're the human rights lawyer and there's these human rights protesters that are mysteriously found dead, <laughs> uh, you know, he had to have had some role in uh, at least going over that what happened. And, you know, so was at he a part of... At least covering it up. I mean, at the very yeah, least. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, that's what... If he wasn't completely overseen the torture and murder himself. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and so that's just another thing that we don't... You know, we don't know a ton of... And there are other witnesses to DeSantis' stuff. You know, Mansoor told me that he is in like a support group of ex-Guantanamo detainees, people, you know, there's been many people released because they had never done anything. And, uh, you know, DeSantis had always been a big opponent of releasing any Guantanamo prisoners, even if they had done nothing wrong to get in there. But their rationale is, oh, well, if they didn't do anything to get there, then they're definitely going to become terrorists now because we tortured them at Guantanamo Bay. Um, When in fact, you know, many of them just try to go into hiding and, and keep a low profile or they're like Mansoor and they just become activists to try to close down Guantanamo Bay. But um, uh, he told me that all of the people in his support group 
all remember Ron DeSantis. And he told me it's because, you know, they don't, they, there's, they encounter so many people at Guantanamo, you don't remember everybody. He said, you remember the people who are nice to you and treat you like you're human, and you remember the worst of the worst. Uh, those are the people that remember, and everyone else just becomes a blur. Everyone remembers DeSantis as one of the worst of the worst. Um, and so, you know, I asked if I could talk to some of those people as well. He said they're all too scared to talk about anything publicly or even off the record. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm working on that. Maybe we can get some more corroborating testimony. But, but that's the thing other media should be doing, too. I mean, now that this information's out there, we know that there are other witnesses at the prison who worked at the prison, but also detainees. And we know that there's a, some shady stuff that likely happened in Iraq afterwards that, that people should look into as well. Well, I was just going to ask you about, Mike, what do, we, what do we know that's on record about anything he was involved in in Iraq? Uh, and what did you find? And also, what do you speculate based on what you found um, that he might have done? Because there's a lot well, the of missing spots in his record there from what it, from when I looked into it. So I'm really curious. So the one thing we do know is that he went directly to Iraq from Guantanamo Bay, basically. I mean, it was like he uh, impressed his superiors and did his job properly at Guantanamo, where mm-hmm. he earned the, you know, he proved his worth and proved his loyalty in doing the job that he was out to do because he went straight from one high-level assignment in Guantanamo to another high-level assignment in Iraq. And his assignment in Iraq was, he basically had the same job of ensuring, quote-unquote, ensuring the human rights of detainees, but also helping uh, plan missions, basically raids and combat operations in accordance with international law. And again, just like Guantanamo, the time and place is very significant here. Just like Guantanamo, the worst year of torture, uh, 2006, he went to Iraq during the height of the troop surge, um, which was the deadliest time for the United States. I mean, almost a thousand U.S. soldiers died in that year alone, which was much more than any other year of the Iraq war. And he went to Fallujah and that area, which was a hotbed of resistance and the unit he was there with. He wasn't with conventional forces. He was with the Special Operations Command, which oversees Navy SEALs and Army Green Berets. Those units are notorious for, I mean, their entire mode of operating is bending the law and operating in the shadows, top secret, outside of the requirements of international law. I mean, that's that's basically what they exist to do. And so DeSantis goes, does all this stuff in Guantanamo for 10 months. Uh, and then they say, oh, we got another good job for you. Go be the advisor to the top special operations commander in one of the most dangerous places in Iraq during this most violent year. Also at a time where like, we have to win the war. Like it was, 2007 was make or break. It was like, either we do this surge and just totally break the resistance and win, or we are stuck in an endless stalemate, or we are just actually defeated. And so there was enormous, or the Iraq war was bad every year, but the pressure that was on commanders to like get results uh, was higher than ever. And I interviewed um, a, a friend of mine who is an infantryman and so did, you know, worked with special operations on these types of raids. I also, since publishing the episode, talked to a couple uh, special operations guys. And what they all told me is the role of the JAG officer uh, in those units, it's not to, you know, they're not keeping anyone in line. They're not saying, hey, don't uh, <laughs> don't torture that guy. They're not saying, oh, if you want to, uh, you know, if you're going to go and raid this house, you can't shoot any civilians. Or, oh, you shot a civilian, then I'm going to, you know, write write a report on that. That's not what they're doing. Their main, their job is to keep people out of trouble. 
I mean, their job is when they commit war crimes, when there are human rights violations that are, you know, not in accordance with international law. The JAG lawyer makes sure that uh, he can kind of formally, you know, put in the right language and reports and all that stuff so that people are kept out of trouble. And that is like their main job there. So we don't know what he did there. We haven't heard from anyone uh, who specifically worked with him. But, you know, it's you can assume that he did not go from that job in Guantanamo to then all of a sudden telling a Navy SEAL commander like, hey, don't uh, don't hurt those civilians or don't don't torture that guy uh, that you shot and you p- took on a Black Hawk and brought into the middle of a field in the middle of nowhere. You know, it's it would seem that his ideology and loyalties were with like, you know, do whatever is necessary to these fucking terrorists uh, so we can win the war. Given the nature of the operations, it it seems um, obvious that he was just the cleanup operator. I mean, he was sent to, to Guantanamo to do precisely that. You know, his title was the opposite of what he was actually doing. And then he goes, goes on to Iraq and gets rewarded to basically do the same thing. Um, we already know that war crimes essentially take place under the cover of darkness, especially with these special operations units. And so to have DeSantis there kind of cleaning up shop and making sure the the good old boys are protected. And then he just kind of skyrockets to this weird culture warrior today where he's just, you know, he's out there parading around these anti-Muslim events, talking about how he knows firsthand that everyone at Guantanamo is a terrorist and that's why they can't be let out. I mean, it really speaks volumes. Probably because uh, they threw shit at him. Which <laughs> he was at the camp. He got uh, apparently he got hit with shit and vomit. Mansoor said he got vomit on him and he was spit on quite a lot because everyone great. hated him. So uh, maybe that <laughs> you know <laughs> informs his opinion of uh, people there. Yeah, Mike. The responses have been interesting too. It's like yeah, there's the the people who posit as anti-war, right? Like these MAGA people who pretend like they're anti-establishment, anti-MIC, and they want to convince themselves that Ron DeSantis is somehow not a rabid neocon, bloodthirsty regime change advocate. But this is almost like too much. You know, this is almost yeah. like too much for them to handle. And so you've seen a lot of interesting takes of just completely rejecting this, um, saying, no, this isn't possible. No, this is just like a left operation. Like this is like you guys are trying to take him down. And then I even got some libs saying this is a Russian operation to try to boost Trump. Oh, my God. So, oh, yeah. my God. Well, <laughs> just on a side note, I saw Howie Hawkins, who's, I guess, running as like an anti-war independent candidate, like jump into the race or something. And he was saying that Democrat, like he started a Facebook group called Democrats for DeSantis to try to stop. Trump. Oh, I think that's a different guy. Oh, that's, yeah, sorry, uh, not Howie Hawkins. Some, sorry. Who is yeah. who was that guy? Youngkin? No. Oh, Greg. No, he's uh, some weird. He's some weird. Jeff. <laughs> Jeff Youngkin. <laughs> it was somebody. It was somebody weird who seen. It's like there are people who I guess are so terrified of Trump that they actually yeah. are saying that DeSantis might not be that bad. And it's like, dude, what are you talking about? This is like, it, it's. It's clearly that he, it'd basically be like a return to Bush era neoconservatism. There's not even an, an appearance or optical sheen of being anti-war of any kind. Like, he, oh yeah, it's really strange. No, I mean, he's a total, I mean, he is close with a guy from the Heritage Foundation, which was like, you know, Iraq War One, Iraq War Two, Bush One, Bush yeah. Two, closest collaborators. I mean, so yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I think the responses have been interesting. You know, one other thing on Iraq, I mean, 2007, that's when the collateral murder video was filmed. I mean, that attack and, uh, and a okay. lot, and that, so like, just to give an idea of what the climate was like in Iraq in 2007 when, you know, Ron DeSantis was there making sure human rights were respected. Um, <laughs> but, uh, 
you know, the, obviously the Trump people aren't going to care about this because Trump campaigned. He, he, remember he was saying, like, we got to fill up Guantanamo Bay. There yeah. aren't enough prisoners at Guantanamo. Yeah. And torture isn't bad enough. Dip like we got to torture. pig's blood. Yeah. And like, we got to torture more. Or we got to execute people at Guantanamo. It's like Trump, you know, ran on that kind of viciousness. And so, you know, he's not going to lose any, you know, it's going to, it almost, this kind of story helps DeSantis among those types of people that he was kind of secretly this brutal torturer. Um, so that's, that's what the one piece. I mean, the, the Democrats don't like it who are the uber liberals who the Trump's politics are kind of secondary to his like persona and that it's an embarrassment to America yeah, to have yeah, a guy yeah. with that demeanor and who's unpredictable and and tweets all day and stuff. And it's like they're it's like they're willing to compromise like literally all of Trump's pol like Trump's exact same political program, which exactly, DeSantis yeah. has. He's exactly the same politics, completely, on everything, even on COVID and on the vaccine. Like, they are identical politically. Um, so they're willing to accept that as long as it's someone who's acts, uh, I guess, respectable and who isn't going to, like, call for an insurrection, overturn the election. That's what it really and, comes down to. And even though he's still had to try to get fucking people on fake voter, false voter charges, like, he is also one of those people. It's just that he... It, they know that he's like an establishment guy so that he's not going to like disrupt the peaceful transition to power. That's I mean, it's literally really just what that. it comes down to. It's really to. just that. Yeah. But there is a weird bent of like, li I don't even know if it's libertarians or what, Robbie. I think that you would might have some Mies, more That's the Mises Caucus, more um, edgelord, anti-woke libertarians. Who have convinced themselves that they're just completely deluded to think that because he rejected mainstream dogma on COVID and like, you know, set this new direction for the country for people to follow to like reject the mandates and blah, 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 that this is like an impossible story to wrap their minds around because it's a lot of the people who Robbie's talking about. When it's weird because I've actually seen libertarians or some of the only people who have, I've seen call out Ron DeSantis for being a flip flopper, like on COVID. Cause mm -hmm. it was weird. Like Mike is saying, like all this new, you know, anti-woke, anti woke uh, social conservatism, culture war stuff is relatively new for him. Even in Congress, he was basically like a Marco Rubio, like a silent Marco Rubio, just voting like Marco Rubio. Right. But this is um, interesting because he's oh, shit. I completely lost what I was going to say. It's like he's been groomed as a challenger to Trump. I mean, it's like the yes. inside the right-wing establishment, they're like, we got to find an alternative to Trump. Who's it going to be? And how can we kind of coach him into becoming someone who can match up with Trump as a hero on the right? And so have DeSantis suddenly changing to becoming this guy who's not just talking like Trump, but introducing all these really bold, wild policies and doing these stunts like the the stunt barred from white supremacists in the civil rights era of sh shipping people to Martha's Vineyard and all that stuff. I mean, having the people arrested for, for voter fraud. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously like, it's a coordinated effort to not just raise his national profile, but raise his national profile in contrast to Trump. That's a really good point. Yeah. And also like Trump like stunts. Cause it's like, he yeah. is mm -hmm. learning from, you know, sparring with the press and, and making the press hate him in Florida. It's like that, previous to Trump was seen as like a total net negative. You don't want to do that as a politician, but like there's some, there is some kind of programming there. Like this is right. not the Ron DeSantis who's finally coming out of his shell. This is definitely right. some kind of groomed. Yep. Mar a new a marketing, new marketing yep. team. Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. They know what's going to capture that energy. Um, uh, well, la yeah. Lastly though, in terms of the responses, I will say there has been a response. I think mainly they're libertarians, but 
I have gotten a lot of response of people saying, I used to love DeSantis, but now I can't support him. And so oh, if, you used really to love to, if you used to love DeSantis, it means you were you know, on the right, because what is there to like right, about right. him except him being... I know some people who are ostensible and, leftists uh, who claim oof. to like him, so... Um, but yeah, so oh, it's, so that is a thing, and, and it's been going around. You know, like people like Scott Horton, who's big in the libertarian anti-war movement, you know, shared the report, and it's gotten, I think, positive okay. response from that. Um, well, I just you know, saw Joseph, him pushing mm-hmm, back on uh, somebody mentioned him. I think it might have been, I don't know, it might it might have been that Twitter account Hotep Jesus or something who had him on, and he was just like, "Desantis is basically Pompeo, like Pompeo." on steroids or something. He just went Good. off on him saying that like, he hates you, your family. Like he just like went off. And I, it's, it's weird because it's like, there are really no other libertarians speaking out against him I, who have prominence like Scott Horton. And that's, it's really weird to see him being like, I've seen straight up big libertarian figures just straight out supporting him. I mean, openly. Well, it's so. like COVID trumps everything else. And that's yeah. what's so scary about it. You know, it oh. shows you how important anti-war politics are when it comes to something like, a phenomenon like COVID. I just remembered I was going to say that the COVID thing was also a flip-flop. It does seem like he rebranded to that early enough to make it seem really authentic. But in reality, he actually did have lockdowns and did have a lot of the same policies that all other states had. In fact, a lot of Republicans did. There was messaging that made them change later on. But I think in DeSantis's case specifically, like you said, Mike, I do think it's overall part of the branding and it was engineered. Like, Maybe even these fucking Brownstone Institute people got involved and like linked up with him, you know, his campaign staff. And Christina Pushaw, his spokesperson, the fact that she used to be like a Georgian media figure who knew, who worked under Shakespeare, the prime minister of Georgia, and was like a pioneer in early Russiagate stuff and then rebrands as a MAGA is just really surreal. It's like yeah. all these people, you know, have, they, they were completely different only just a few years yep. ago. So... Yeah, I mean, Trump even called out DeSantis for locking down his state early in the pandemic to try to draw that, you know, to try to show that he's a little bit of a hypocrite now. But I mean, if you're thinking as someone who is trying to groom a candidate to challenge Trump and you're looking at what issue can divide the MAGA movement or peel a significant number of Trump's base away to another candidate, it was so obviously COVID at the time because so much of the Trump base became COVID deniers, the vax is poison, Bill Gates microchip stuff. Like that was a huge portion of Trump base and Trump was proud of the vaccine. So it's like the most obvious thing ever to say, oh, now let's actually have DeSantis kind of switch gears and become this big hero to the anti-vax and, you know, COVID hoax movement. And it's really worked. I mean, I've been following the uh, knowledge fight tracking Alex Jones recently. Yeah. And, um... that Alex Jones' audience is—I mean, I just listened to the episode where he talks about Trump's announcement, and Alex Jones takes a bunch of callers, and they're like, have a lot of them have turned on Trump over the vaccine, and it's, oh, yeah. it's actually pretty interesting to hear. So it's an effective—it's an effective strategy, and it doesn't seem to have come organically from Ron DeSantis. That's a really. Are you sure it's point. not a Russian operation? Right. I'm still not convinced that Putin is somehow not behind this. Um, where can people listen to the full report to hear Mansoor's whole testimony? Because it really is a must listen. I would yes. have played clips here, but I want people to go to Eyes Left so they can hear the interview themselves, Mike. Yeah, and there's a lot more that we didn't get to talk about today. So you can find Eyes Left podcasts wherever you stream podcasts. You could find us on social media at Eyes Left Pod. This is a show that I did for a couple years, but took 
a couple years off and just brought it back. And so this is really our first episode coming back. And so it's the first of many like it. Great comeback. It's a big fucking episode. Yeah, it's a a big comeback, dude. I mean, it's pretty amazing to see that someone could already be the torturer in chief without even getting to the executive branch, you know, and and having that under their belt. Well, shows why they like him, you know, he proved his worth. Unbelievable, dude. Already a war criminal, you know, and no one's talking about it. So great work, Mike. Really proud of you. Um, Eyes Left is going to be great. Everyone subscribe. It's now an Empire Files project, so if you want to go support, go to uh, go to the Patreon and get get some exclusive content. Mike, um, thank you so much for coming on and contributing. I really appreciate that deep dive. Yeah, Thanks thank for you, covering man. it. Uh, even though the story's out now, I don't I don't really think it's going to get picked up, and so it really is just alt media like this that's going to keep the story out there, and hopefully, uh, it comes back to bite him one day. Yeah, it's funny that all the news that when they were covering like his military experience, it was just kind of like. Oh, cool. Like he says, he was just overseeing human yeah, rights yeah. at Guant- Guantanamo. I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> that honestly was, when I was reading that, I was like, this seems eerie to me. Like, why wouldn't the media be like, well, let's actually fucking find out instead of just having a guy say, yeah, he was a great guy. Like, they they just had like quotes from people who like said nothing about what he did, but just said like, oh yeah, he was great. Like, <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's that. And there's another narrative that's like an anti-DeSantis narrative that I I think is is not a good one. And it's that he like pretended to be a Navy SEAL and was like trying to pretend that he was a Navy SEAL when he was Stolen Valor, bro. Yeah, but, and so there's all these articles being like, he wasn't really a SEAL. He was just like the dumb JAG guy, like for the SEALs. Oh, it was just shit. like a pencil pusher. And it's like, well, no, no, really think about <laughs> what, you know, cause he has that cool guy photo of him in Iraq yeah, with the, yeah. you know, his sidearm and his assault rifle. But like, you know, it's, it's obvious that he wasn't ever doing anything because- you know, if, if you're in special operations in 2007 and you don't have any, a sight on your rifle, you know, like, you know, you're not really meant to use that thing. But anyways, like, you know, so there is some shit talking against him for trying to imply that he was part of the Navy SEALs in Fallujah or whatever. But I don't think he did that. I think he just says I was in Iraq and people say and that he was advising the SEALs. But nobody looked into what would that mean if you were advising the SEALs on human rights in Fallujah in 2007? That's such a great point. And yeah, thank you again, Mike, for for procuring that interview and and presenting all that stuff. Um, and yeah, hopefully you go even further with it because uh, I'd love to I'd love to get more st- stuff about what he actually did in Iraq. Um, but uh, yeah, anything you want to say, Abby? Or uh, no, I mean it's just so alarming that that's how little the mainstream media cares to follow up about like potential war crimes and torture, like during the worst year of Guantanamo, and just assume that everything is just like above board. It's just like, well, good thing DeSantis was in there overseeing that everything was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh <laughs> like, what on earth is happening? You know, I mean, it just goes back to that Iran story. It's like it's just so easy to just manufacture these things and then just paper over it. Um, Mike's report is really an essential must listen. And I, I really encourage everyone to spread it around because like Mike said, I mean, this is only going to circulate in alternative media, but if we can just impact that, um, support that's being built for Ron DeSantis among like alternative media folk and also just like libertarians, like this energy for him, I think that it really needs to be tamped down. And like this, if you, if you remotely give a shit, about anything that we talk about on this program, then this should be the end of your, you know, this should be the end of your respect for this motherfucker. He's a <laughs> disgusting war criminal and a torturer. So fuck him. Aside from all the other crazy shit that he's doing, this is just like, boom. Yep. So, um, Robbie, we were going to go into 
the entire Elon Musk taking over Twitter, and we completely did not have time for that because it is already almost two and a half hours that we've been talking. So we're going to do a whole other episode just on that. Apartheid billionaire um, and what he has done to this platform and, and how insane it all is. Robbie, there's so much to talk about always with you. It was really fun to just catch up on headlines this time and to get Mike's exclusive reporting on this really big bombshell story. Um, Everyone out there, please support Media Roots Radio. There's a ton of exclusive content out there that my brother has mostly put together. Tons of deep dives on really fascinating esoteric topics that you can immediately access if you become a Patreon subscriber. And just, uh, yeah, if if you like alternative media that's actually not partisan... And has been around since 2010, and we've always hated both parties, and we've always told it like it is, Robbie, and we don't get we don't get psyoped over here at Media Roots Radio. So to all the heads out there, thank you for your support. We appreciate you very much. Can't wait to hear what you think. Um, yeah, and to all the trolls and haters alike, see you on the flip side, motherfuckers. See you guys. Uh, Patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. Peace care. out.